Hi, I'm Josh Block, host of Uncover Escaping Nexium from CBC Podcasts. I pull back the curtain on the secretive self-help group that experts call a cult and follow one woman's harrowing journey to get out. The podcast was featured in Rolling Stone magazine and named one of the best podcasts of 2018 in The Atlantic. Listen to Uncover Escaping Nexium on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. They demanded change a year ago, right before the crisis of COVID-19 took hold. A group representing Inuit women was sounding alarm bells about another crisis, increased violence against women in their communities and the lack of safe spaces for those women to escape to. Now the federal government has responded to that call, announcing it will help build five new women's shelters, providing $20 million in funding. Rebecca Kudluk is president of the Paktutit Inuit Women of Canada. She is in Baker Lake, Nunavut, Rebecca, good morning. Good morning. You had a meeting with uh, Mark Miller, the Indigenous Services Minister, last year, specifically asking for this funding that has now arrived. What does it mean for Inuit women that the funding has finally been approved for these new shelters? So after decades, decades of advocacy work um, by Pauktutit, um, we finally have a secure commitment for funding of emergency shelters for Inuit women was very good news. Um, it has been advocating for more shelters for 35 years. So um, actually after the last uh, federal election, we met with several ministers to advocate for the needs of Inuit women and children. Mm. During these meetings, we told ministers our highest priority was funding for five shelters for women and children. Um, all the ministers, ministers told us we were, they were supportive, but we've heard this before. <laughs> uh, however, Minister Vandale was quite clear. He said if funding, is, funding for shelters was spoke to this highest priority, I, I will work with you to get the funding. So in late January, when the Minister Miller and um, Minister Vandell um, called to tell me the announcements to be made shortly in a few days, Baker Lake was grieving the loss of third young person to suicide mm-hmm. So in just two months. So this um, announcement was very welcome at a very difficult time. We know that violence against women happens everywhere across this country, but what makes Inuit women particularly vulnerable in these circumstances? The rate of uh, domestic violence for Inuit women is 14 times the national average, yet we only have 70% of our communities that have safe shelters for women, a lot of them closed because of lack of funding. So we've been really pushing for five shelters to be built, four in Inuit and one in Ottawa. As a lot of women um, go to Ottawa, for instance, to the other cities too, to um, a lot of them uh, to get away from violence. Uh, but they also encounter other um, problems when they get there. Um, mostly, the targeted by drug dealers or sex traffickers who are who uh, are waiting to exploit at their highest degree of vulnerability. So we were also thinking about uh, 
women who go to urban air or cities to escape. What is at the root of, of that number that you quoted, the 14 times higher, the, the rates of violence being 14 times higher than for other women across the country? What's at the heart of that, do you think? Um, we, Inuit have gone through a lot in a short period of time. In, the, in my lifetime, I grew up on the land. I was born on the land and grew up with a loving family. But residential school took me away at age nine to go to residential school. Luckily, I went to residential schools um, that, you know, were good, but uh, a lot of people were abused. And um, in these schools, and there's a long history of um, intergenerational violence that happened from there. And on top of that, we don't have services to provide counseling in our communities for mental health, alcohol treatment. Um, but but that's something I've been wait, um, working on is to have healing programs. Mm. So these uh, social ills um, are not that, you know, we want it to go lower, of course. But it's an ongoing fight. Um, to get those services in a small community. Do you see a change in in how those systemic issues are being recognized? I think of the recent court case involving a young mother in Nunavut who killed her abusive husband. The judge acquitted her, saying that she acted in self-defense. And this is the first time this kind of defense in such a case was, was accepted in Nunavut. And the judge also talked about the cycle of violence in the North and said that it wouldn't end without the resources and the funding that you've been talking about. Do you see that as a significant change? Yes, this case is a tragedy. Anytime we hear a woman or a man um, killed in in this way, it's always a tragedy for all of us, especially for the communities that they live in, because we know everybody else in the community, and it really hurts. And that's why we're on put. It has been pushing for healing programs. I know there's a lot of issues about um, unresolved grief. It seems like I said uh, we had three suicides in two months in Baker Lake. It seems like, you know, one on top of each other uh, when we're trying to deal with one, something else comes up. So those are things that um, I think have to be dealt with. And I strongly feel that... um, we should have a treatment program that is suitable for Inuit, like we have in Baker Lake, where we counsel all in all areas of family violence offenders from the courts are referred children. Um, you know, I think that's something that has worked in my community, and we've been running for 35 years, and we thought we would run for one year. Mm. So those programs that are working have to be supported by the government to have funding available um, each year. Multi-year funding would be really good because there's a lot of um, healing to be done. And if we don't provide that, then, you know, we'll still have 14 uh, more, you know, higher, highest violence in the country. 
You've been doing this work for a long time, and I really appreciate speaking with you about the work that uh, you've done and work still to come. Rebecca, thank you very much. Thank you. Rebecca Kudluk is president of the Poktutit Inuit Women of Canada. She was in Baker Lake, Nunavut. As she mentioned, the government's own numbers show Inuit women experience violence at a rate 14 times higher than the national average. Becky Michelin knows all about that, and her own history has driven her to become an activist on this issue. Becky lost both parents in a murder-suicide in the Inuit community of Rigolet, Labrador, and she joins me now from Happy Valley Goose Bay. Becky, good morning to you. Good morning. You have lived through um, enormous tragedy, and, and I know that, that not everyone would be comfortable speaking out about that, but you have. Why, are you, why is it so important for you to talk about what you and your family went through? Um, I think my biggest reason to uh, advocate um, is to be a voice for my mother. She is no longer with us, so I feel like it's important to try to be her voice. And I feel the need to fight for the rights that she didn't have in place when she was murdered. And in the process, I feel like this helps me fight for other people who may be experiencing um, gender-based violence and fight for their rights. And... uh, Definitely to bring awareness to this very, very important topic. Um, Also, I think sharing, you know, survivor stories of trauma such as my own uh, can help provide to others who are affected by trauma and face gender-based violence. Um, Throughout my advocacy, I have received an outpouring of support uh, through speaking and advocating, in which I'm very grateful. What do you remember about your mom? Uh, my mom, she was, she loved us um, so much, and she loved the outdoors, and I hear a lot of stories about her, um, you know, her humor, and just the, the beautiful person that she was, um, and she's definitely missed, and I miss feeling that unconditional love, and I miss having her with me. What do you know about the supports that were or weren't available to her when she was raising you? I mean, part of the work that you're doing and what we were talking to Rebecca about was the need for greater supports. Were there supports there for your mom? Uh, Not at the time when she was murdered. Uh, Unfortunately, there was no policing in the community, which meant for her and any other woman facing any need for policing, uh, she couldn't just call for help. And they would have to fly in from another community by helicopter to get there. So, I mean, by the time the police would have arrived there, more than likely would have been too late already. And there were no shelters for her to go to. Uh, She didn't have that extra support of just being able to leave and take us and go somewhere safe. That the, the police part of it, um, but also the the advocacy for uh, women's shelters is something that your grandmother became a vocal advocate for in in the wake of this tragedy. Do you feel in some ways as though you're following in her footsteps? Uh, I do, and I hope that someday I can be um, half the advocate that she is. Hmm. She fought tremendously to have resources readily available for women facing and experiencing gender gender based violence. Um, You know, she did fight for the women's shelter and a safe place to go for women. And she did fight for a police to be stationed in the remote communities. You know, living in the north, we have a lot of small communities where there's no police. 
And, you know, she really opened up the doors for important conversations to take place. So back when my mother was murdered, women's rights were, you know, much more insignificant than they are now and wasn't taken quite so seriously. And a lot of these issues were pushed under the rug and it was something that wasn't spoken about. So my grandmother really done some important and groundbreaking work towards women's rights. Mm. She she took all of her hurt and uh, her energy, and she really poured it into um, making change for women. And, you know, with everything she has been through, um, I think that's very powerful. Part of the work that is being done, and this is what Rebecca was speaking about as well, is that, that cycle of violence and the roots of violence, particularly in historic trauma um, in the North and, and, and in other communities. How do you go about trying to break that cycle and address the historic roots of it? Um, I think to break the cycle, you know, in communities, um, a holistic approach really needs to uh, begin it needs to take place to begin healing the communities. Um, I think because these issues trace back so far um, from intergenerational trauma that there needs to be big plans in place. It's good that we have more resources available now, um, you know, with the policing and shelters in remote communities, but I think we need to a revised plan looking into the root of the problem. For example, um, we have shelters available for women uh, now, but I think there needs to be help as well for men. Tell me, tell me more about that. What, what more do you think? I mean, what, what's the role of addressing this with men? Do you think? Um, so, if we look at the big picture, uh, many people who face trauma in their own lives uh, are at higher risk for things such as substance abuse, addictions, mental health problems, and you know, living a a high-risk lifestyle. So these behaviors are exhibited initially as a coping mechanism, um, but those in direct contact learn to adapt to these behavioral patterns, thinking it's a normal lifestyle. And this ultimately becomes a trauma response intergenerationally. So we need to heal generations of people for this to work. And um, we need to unlearn all of those coping mechanisms and really deal with healing And I think men, um, you know, men that have faced trauma, uh, you know, they they face all these, you know, high-risk lifestyles, substance abuse. I'm not saying all of them, but, you know, generally speaking. And so that's something we need to heal through a long line of people. Do you see progress in this? I mean, you know, Rebecca talked about doing this work for 35 years and has been banging on the door of government saying we need supports for for decades now. And finally, it seems as though the supports are coming. In the work that you're doing, do you see things moving in the right direction? Um, I think as of right now, the steps that are being made and uh, with all the advocacy and people fighting for for better for our people – you know, you do see things happening, and it's definitely talked about uh, more now, which is bringing light to the subject, which is always important work. Um, and, you know, through advocacy and fighting for for more resources, you slowly see it happening. And, you know, there's still so much work that needs to be done, but we are moving in the right direction. The work that you're doing is really, really important, and I'm... Glad that you are willing to talk about it again. Not everybody would, given what you've been through, but it's um, it's really important to hear from you. Becky, thank you. Thank you. Becky Michelin is a survivor of family violence. She lived in Happy Valley, Goose Bay.
You know your smart, funny friends who always seem to have the best celebrity gossip? I'm talking about the ones who always know what you should be watching or reading or listening to. Well, what if you could pick their brains every week? Pop Chat is a brand new podcast that does exactly that and feels like spending time with your best friends. So join me, Alameen Abdul-Mahmoud, and a panel of the smartest culture critics that I know as we dissect the discourse, but also have a great time doing it. I'm Nala Ayed, host of Ideas. In this age of clickbait and online shouting, Ideas is a meeting ground for people who want to deepen their understanding of the world. Join me as we crack open a concept to see how it plays out over place and time and how it matters today. From the rise of authoritarianism to the history of cult movies, no idea is off limits. Ideas is on the CBC Listen app or wherever you find your podcasts. In the Canadian territories, one in three people lives more than 100 kilometers from a domestic violence shelter, creating what advocates call a shelter desert. The YWCA of Northwest Territories is working on a plan to bring safe houses to these remote communities. Jeanette Demers is the Director of Violence Against Women's Shelters and Services for the organization. Good morning to you. Tell me about a safe house and how a safe house is different from a traditional women's shelter, because there is there there, there are different things here. Absolutely. Um, so we know that establishing uh, a bona fide women's shelter is, uh, you know, a long work in progress. It requires uh, lots of resources, and um, it is also a long-term commitment in terms of building the structure, maintaining it, staffing it. Um, and it's not always uh, an appropriate option in some communities, particularly those that are very small. Uh, it just wouldn't be sustainable. So a safe home option is really dependent on um, what the community uh, requires and, and how it can meet their needs. So it may be uh, that someone opens up their home, um, their per- private home, and their family accommodates uh, a woman and her children in a time of crisis. It could very well be a space that's dedicated <clears throat> to people that are in need at a, at a nursing station, for example. It could be, um, you know, the room that uh, was previously occupied by a chaplain in, in you know, a, in a small church mm-hmm. Uh, in the community. So there are a lot of particular uh, examples of what it could look like, but it, it has to be informed by what the community needs and what will be feasible for the community. I'd said in the introduction that there are these shelter deserts where, you know, one in three people um, live more than 100 kilometers away from a shelter. In the absence of the shelters, uh, what happens? Well, Generally, you know, women are isolated and um, continue to experience intimate partner violence. Uh, many of them will stay um, because there is no alternative. There is no safe place uh, for them. And if there is, as you mentioned, it is um, hours away and, and very difficult to, to actually arrive to. Um, we're talking about communities that sometimes don't have uh, roads. Uh, so, you know, having to fly in or use an ice road in the winter um, and it also means picking up and leaving everything that you know, your entire way of life, um, the responsibilities that you may have at home, your supports, uh, your language, uh, your culture. Um, so leaving leaving home is a big deal. And, and when you do leave and, and you arrive to a safe place, a bigger center with a shelter, then you encounter an entire set of challenges at that point in time and then um, are in a predicament of, of making a decision about, you know, what's, what's going to happen next? Mm. Do I go back 
do I stay and make this fresh start? And if I do, what is what does that mean for me and my family? And how do I go about doing that? You're in Yellowknife, which is a hub city in many ways in yeah. the north. Um, what are you seeing there? I mean, how busy are the shelters right now? And are you seeing women coming to those shelters from across the north? Yeah, for sure. Uh, so we have five shelters here in the territory, and for the most part, they are they're very busy. I mean, I, right now, um, as with many other facilities, we've had to scale back uh, the number of people that we can accommodate just to ensure safety in light of uh, the COVID pandemic. Um, so that means we're we're having to turn more women away than we normally would, um, and as a result, uh, we try to support women to travel and access a shelter, live a neighboring shelter. And I say neighboring; I mean it could be 11 hours away wow. in some instances. So uh, that's not ideal either, because then you're you're really looking at displacing uh, families even more. Um, and and then you know they they're there temporarily. A shelter is is a is a refuge. It's intended to be a short stay um, and and this is what a safe home option can provide too it may be in fact an even shorter stay uh, in some cases you know women need need a soft place to land they, they want respite they want to get away from the situation uh, keep themselves and their kids safe and uh, at the same time they, they really want to continue to be with their family um, and stay in that relationship so um, you know, Becky talked a lot, and, and I think Rebecca did as well, about the need for healing uh, for the entire family. And um, ultimately, th- I think that's going to support us in getting us at the root of the issue. If we're going to stop gender-based violence, we have to look at increasing um, healing for, for the entire family. Uh, these, these situations really are born out of, out of trauma and intergenerational violence, and so the cycle will not be interrupted until we can find a, a more holistic way. And with the safe home option, um, we are embarking on a, on a needs assessment and, and we will be engaging with community members. And the idea is that uh, the safe home option will be community-centered and culturally informed. So we will be seeking allies and leadership uh, to really support this initiative and, mm. and you know see what the feasibility is in maintaining it after our project is complete uh, in, in the next four years. Just in the last minute and a bit that we have, I mean, what does that healing look like from your perspective? Um, Becky talked about the idea of, of, of a more holistic approach to this, and Rebecca was hinting at that as well. What does that look like from the work that you're doing? Yeah, I think what it, it looks like is, is providing space, um, you know, whether it be a facility uh, or on-the-land uh, initiatives that really encourage people to come together um, and and participate in, in traditional activities that, that may have been taken from them. Um, I think it means having real honest conversations with community members uh, and, and supporting one another so that restoration and healing can happen. Um, it means maintaining language and, and tradition and, and really um, celebrating the differences um, among all of the, uh, the Indigenous peoples here in the territories, um, there are a number of, of different groups. So it's, it's about recognizing all of that and, and making sure that we maintain um, sovereignty for, for the, those individuals. Just very briefly, do you see room now for those conversations? I mean, stigma and, and the difficulty in approaching those tough issues um, can prevent those conversations from happening. Do you see the room now being developed for those conversations? 
I think so. Yeah. You know, with the, the the funding that's being announced uh, for the Inuit shelters, and I think you know the the government's um, plans for a national strategy on gender-based violence. I think people are more receptive to it, and certainly with more survivors speaking out today and breaking the silence, um, you know, the courage and the strength of those individuals is really, I think, enabling us to have honest conversations mm. about the impact. So I think we're we're in a better place, uh, but there is still a lot of a lot of uh, growth that needs to happen for sure. I'm glad to have had the chance to talk to you and I thank you for the work that you're doing. Gina, thank you. Thank you. Have a good day. And you, Jeanette Demers, is with the YWCA of the Northwest Territories. She was in Yellowknife. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts. I'm obviously desperate to get back into the England team. I think you're the pinnacle of cricket is still international cricket. Um, So I'd love to try and force my way back into that limited overside um, somehow. So you haven't spoken to Ed Smith or Ashley Giles, anyone involved in that setup, Owen Morgan? I sent a a message to Morgan, I think it was around April last year, just we went into lockdown, but obviously that had only been a year since it happened. So he obviously wasn't ready to to talk about anything like that. But, um, you know, hopefully in in the coming months, hopefully there's some conversations that can be had. You know, one, one way or the other. Hello and welcome to the Cricket Show. That was an interview that Nasra and myself did with Alex Hales yesterday. We'll show you that later on in the show. But for now, we're going to be talking about England with Bumble and Ath. Um, so England were comprehensively beaten in the second Test match. Yeah. So it is now 1-1 with Rohit Sharma getting a brilliant 160. Uh, R. Ashwin outstanding, 5 for 43 and 100 for the all-rounder. But Nasa, um England were comprehensively beaten. Is it panic stations or not? No, I don't think so. England have been excellent uh, in Test match cricket of late, excellent away from home. India prepared a pitch to spin and then gave England a masterclass on how to play on it. You sort of felt when Rohit Sharma walked off that surface, 161 he made, you felt that that was the defining innings of the game and the game was pretty much done and dusted. India's batsmen batted better against spin. And let's be honest, their spinners outbowled the England spinners with uh, the control and variation that they gave Kohli. It was complete domination from first ball to the last roll. Ath, you got any problems with the pitch? It spun from ball one, spun comprehensively from ball one. Any issues with that? No, I, I thought it was challenging, but not impossible. I don't think the toss was important. It was more important in the first test, actually. Nightmare as an England captain in Asia is if you lose the toss and the pitch is flat for a couple of days and and then turns, whereas this one turned from the outset. Um, so if your spinners are good enough, you're in the game, uh, and that really is is the bottom line. That England's spinners were outbowled by uh, India's spinners. Obviously, that first day was absolutely vital. That was a lot of runs on that surface and a brilliant bold. 100 from Rohit Sharma really set the game up. So no problems with the pitch. Didn't think the toss was decisive. Uh, England outplayed, but not out of the series at all. Thinking ahead to Ahmedabad, pink pink ball, day-night test match. Lots could change. You agree with that, Bumble? No. (laughs) The the quality of Indian spinners was... He's a fantastic... Bowler, Ashwin, 
in Asian conditions. He takes his wickets at 21, 22. Not so away from Asia, averages 31 with a ball, but uh, he pounced. But I just take issue. There wasn't a surface. There isn't one. They just put some stumps in. There's no surface. I I think that's unacceptable for a test match. They've had months to prepare a pitch, and that's it, prepare a pitch. There was no preparation in this, and I just think that's totally wrong for a, a, a test match to have... No surface. There wasn't one. I lost interest after 20 minutes. I, I knew what would happen. The inevitable uh, loss uh, for England and big lumps coming out of the pitch in that first half hour. That's not how it should be for me. Come on in, NASA. What do you think about it all? I very rarely disagree with Bumble, but I was glued to my TV every single ball because of the surface. I mean, India in the past... At times you go there and 600 plays 700. I know they've gone the opposite here, but I was glued to every ball. It was so watchable. There were so many things going on. Um, it was just Ravi Ashwin got a 100, a second innings 100 on it, and Rohit Sharma got 160 on it. India scored over 600 runs on it. You know, it's not that much of a minefield if these lads are getting runs on it. I just hope England actually don't have that mentality of it's the pitch, it's the pitch, it was the toss, it's the umpiring, it's DRS. You can quickly go into siege mentality in India. What they need to do is realise how good they've been away from home and learn from how Ashwin and Rohit Sharma batted on it. Learn from their spinners. I've never seen, in the last five tests, I've never seen an English finger spinner bowl as many full tosses as Don Bess and Moen Ali bowled in that first innings. Every other over, there's a full toss. I didn't see any full tosses from Patel and Ravi Ashwin. Control and wicket-taking potential. And that's the area England need to work on. They were completely outbowled by the Indian spinners. Uh, Athen, you can have the final word just quickly on the pitch. What should have happened? What should the ICC, the umpires, have done? You've got two differing views there from Nasser and Bumble. What should, what should have happened to the pitch? Should it have been ranked poor, substandard, whatever it is, or just a good wicket? Well, it won't be ranked a good wicket, I should think. I mean, my view is that there are two unexpected surfaces in Test cricket. You know, the, the 700 plays, 800 that NASA talked about, that's a rarity these days, thankfully. And then the one that we were all involved in, apart from you, Rob, actually, at Sabina Park in 1998, a dangerous pitch where uniquely the Test match was abandoned. And then you'll get lots in between. And, and preparing a pitch is not... Um, is not an exact science, so some will veer towards being batting-friendly, some will veer towards being bowler-friendly. This was obviously at the end of that scale. Um, the ideal pitch for me is a batting ball that slightly favours the ball. That's the ideal. You very rarely get an ideal. Um, this was obviously at the other end of the scale, um, but fine. I mean, I think variety is absolutely key. It's one of the beauties of the game. It it determines how players are judged at the end of their career, whether they can cope in England, in Australia on hard pitches, in India on turning pitches. I think it's the absolute essence of the game. Just to be clear, Rob, I'm absolutely 100% for a spinning pitch from ball one. Absolutely. Interesting cricket. But if there's no surface, as there wasn't in this pitch, there wasn't a surface. It's not been prepared. The groundsman hasn't done anything. 
I think that's totally wrong for Test match cricket. Our spinners were useless. It's as simple as that. They were useless. Waste of time. Right, anyway, the other things that have come out of that is the fact that Moran Ali sort of got thrown under the bus, but that story's been quashed quite well, actually, by Chris Silverwood, who said that it wasn't Moran Ali's choice to go home. It was actually always, always part of the plan uh, for Moran to go at this stage. Now, NASA, it sort of brings in, though, this rotation policy and also looking at the fact that Joe Root, is not going to have his best team. You can argue it didn't make a difference in this test match. That's fine. But the fact is that Joe Root is not going to have his best team, but Owen Morgan will for the white ball leg of it. It's only the T20s. One, is that right? And are you happy that Moen Ali has gone home? Is that the right thing to do? Well, I think we have to give him some leeway here, Rob. I mean, Joe Root just made an error after in a press conference after four very difficult days. And he said that Mo had chosen to go home. And you're right, they've corrected that. He's apologised to Mo. Chris Silverwood cleared it up yesterday. It was the wrong thing to say. That doesn't you know, take away from the fact that you don't say that because Butler and Bairstow and Sam Curran and Mark Wood were all, you know, it was the selectorial decision. They hadn't chosen, but Mo had. But they did clear that up yesterday. And it does bring into the whole uh, equation rotation. I'm a firm believer that you have to rotate this year. The problem is not with the selectors, not with the management. It's with the schedule. 17 test matches, two IPLs, a World T20 and an Ashes and a global pandemic in a year. (laughs) I think we have to give them a bit of leeway that they won't get it spot on. But the one thing they must do, and I hope all four of us agree on this, is that they must look after their players. Their players in going from bubble to bubble to bubble, it is not easy and they need to be looked after. Do we, can we all agree on that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But what about the fact then that, uh, I'll come to you on this, Ath, that these bubbles are fine and they're really tough to live in and all of that and the fact you've got to rotate people out of it so they can get home to see their families, but they'll do the whole of the IPL a lot of these players. So is that right? Is it right that it looks like England are putting T20 cricket and white ball cricket ahead of test match cricket? First of all, I think it's absolutely right. I agree with Nas that rest and rotation is absolutely right in this particular year. It's a unique year, a demanding year, uh, and better to be proactive uh, around players' health and, and, and well-being, mental health and well-being than too late. We've seen what's happened in the past with the difficulties of scheduling and the impact that has on players. So they are absolutely right uh, to rest and rotate. The issue is when they rest and rotate, which is what you just touched upon there. Uh, Firstly, should uh, England's white ball part of the India tour be given priority over the Test Match tour? I mean, that's, that's a debate to be had. England have got a World T20 coming in October in India They have clearly allowed Owen Morgan to have his best side for that. And judgment in the end on all this has to wait really till the end of the year. We've got 17 tests, a World T20, numerous white ball games. England may yet win this series in India. They may win the Ashes. They may win the World T20. (laughs) And judgment in the end then becomes very straightforward. Um, The IPL, I think, is is a more straightforward issue because in this year, Everybody is saying, all of us are saying, that you have to be flexible about everything. 
And it seems to me that the one area that nobody's being flexible about, about is the IPL, which seems to be untouchable this year. Now, I think England could have said to the players, fine, you can play a month of IPL, but we need you to rest, take some of your rest in IPL as well. Now, remember the multi-contracted players, so you're talking Archer, Stokes, Butler, et al. They're getting close to seven-figure sums from the ECB. Um, so I think it would have been perfectly reasonable for the ECB to say this year, we want you to take a little bit of rest in IPL as well. We all know where the IPL stands in the world game. Near the top, players want to play in it. They're desperate to play in it. And every year by this year, the players will be allowed to play in it because England aren't going to schedule any test matches in that early part of the year. They're going to create a block for their players. But this year, in this uniquely demanding year where everything has to have a bit of give and take and a bit of flexibility. I think that England could have found some flexibility there as well. Bumble, what would you have done? You've been England coach. Um, would you be, not that it's Chris Silver's decision, how would you sit with players playing the whole of the IPL but missing test matches in particular for England? Well, number one, welfare of the players is number one. That That's what should happen straight up. IPL just blows it all apart. It just blows it apart. If players need time away from the game and to be with the families, IPL is a long, long time. Is, is it a period there where they don't need looking after? They don't need to see the family. So it's blown it apart. It's a very difficult one. Arthur's just mentioned there, IPL is top of the pile. Players want to play in it. Why do they want to play in it? Because it pays unbelievably well and there's nothing wrong with that. Um, but you've got to measure everything together in that if you need a rest from England in this unbelievable schedule that they've got in this unbelievable year, surely you need a rest also during that period and time away of the IPL. It won't happen. Ah, the uh, auction's going on now. Do you think they get the they get the gigs if they go into the auction saying, I'm only going to do a month? Do you think that... Some sides will go, well, hold on, we want you for the whole period. Well, I, I absolutely understand that. I mean, these are incredibly difficult uh, issues, aren't they? I, I listened in to Chris Silverwood yesterday, and I felt for him, really, because what can he say about this? Um, in the end, he, he batted it off, probably in the most sensible fashion possible. To say, Look, you know, the IPL is the IPL. We can't do anything about it. Um and I absolutely take your point that if England had said, you know, you, you've got a month and not two months, would, would players get picked up? Uh, but I think you can probably see where I'm coming from, too, that everything is uh, to be flexible in this year, that there's give and take everywhere apart from here. Uh, and that really is, is the point I'm trying to make, that, you know, if we're, if we're asking everybody to be flexible about everything, then, then that should be the case there, too. Ath, I was listening. I know you've written about this as well. I was listening to Will McPherson in the Two Hacks One Pro podcast, and he was saying that this sort of blows up England's contract policy, the way that they do it, where people just have test contracts, and then you have white ball contracts that are well below that, certainly financially, and then you have Moan Alley. So I agree that it, you, when you put Joss Butler, Ben Stokes, people like that who are on central contracts – that is, they are far better off than someone like Moen Alley and Johnny Bairstow, who aren't. 
Is there not a better way to do that? So it's not such a disparity between the people who are centrally contracted and the ones who miss out. So it's more of a decision or a dilemma for those players if they don't go to the IPL. I quite agree. Um, and I have written about it before and I totally agreed with, with what Will was saying on that podcast. Because that, And that's why I mentioned before when I used the term multi-contracted players because there are some like Butler and, and Stokes and Archer who are contracted over red ball and white ball. You rightly say that Moen Ali and Johnny Bairstow are not. So it's a very different situation. They're getting a fraction uh, or half as much as a white ball player white ball contracted player as, as those who are multi-contracted. And I agree with you. It's a very antiquated system now. This pick 12 red ball players, 12 white ball players is a nonsense. Just have 20 to 25, ban them as you think you'll use them over the, over the course of the year. You know, in the past, I've used the example last year in South Africa of Burns and Denley opening the batting together in a test match. Burns on a red ball contract worth twice as much as Denley's white ball contract Denley also in one-day cricket, playing one-day cricket. That's a ridiculous situation. So it's a hangover from when first, uh, from when contracts first came in. But the world has changed very quickly, and I think the contract system has to change with it uh, because particularly this year, when the selectors are trying to be so flexible, uh, making changes, resting and rotating players, which we all agree with, that then shines a spotlight on the inflexibility of this red ball, white ball contract system. Bumble, just finish with you on this. Coley uh, showed some pretty indifferent form, I thought, especially towards the umpires. Didn't get punished for it. You surprised at that? Should he have been? Oh, not surprised with the ICC, not at all. You just can't behave like that. I'm a broken record, yellow cards, red cards. I would see that as a red card situation. He would miss the next game. He might miss the series. Uh, but I'll be very much on my own. A lot of people call it passion. If it's passion, I'd, I'd really like a peck on the cheek while it's happening. He shouldn't be playing the next game. It's as simple as that. You've got young children. How would you be if young children started to be haranguing umpires, ridiculing umpires like that? There's no room for it. And the leader of a national team should know better. Fair enough. Right, we're going to have to take a quick break. And after that, we're going to be hearing from England's forgotten man. Very typical of Alex Hales when he gets going. Lovely strike from Alex Hales. Oh, it's massive. What a way to bring up your 50, Alex Hales. Oh, yes. Oh, crunch. It's a third consecutive six. What an innings that was from Alex Hales. What a way to bring up a hundred for Alex Hales! That's huge. Lovely timing. Some excellent innings. A hundred from just 62 balls. So the PSL starts on Saturday. That is a seriously good competition to watch. The atmosphere will be unbelievable. And one of those players playing in that is Alex Hales. And Nasser and I spoke to him yesterday. So I've just got to Karachi. I'm in the middle of um, my three-day quarantine just for the start of the PSL. So, um, yeah, locked away in my hotel room. I'm just, yeah, waiting to get going at the weekend. Because uh, we obviously haven't seen you for England for a little while. You sometimes lose track or people lose track on what you've been doing. But I've seen you've been out at the Big Bash. You had a very good tournament out there, actually. I reckon you're a top-run scorer. What did you play? 50 matches, 543 runs, at an average of 38, but a strike rate of 161. 
Uh, so you've been having a pretty good time of it, it seems. Yeah, the last year has been really, really good. I had a great time with the Sydney Thunder the year before and um, ended up winning the PSL with, with Karachi and yeah, felt in really good form for them as well. And to win the trophy with Notts as well this summer, you know, I had a bit of a shock at myself, but um, to be part of that squad to win the trophy, that's why you play the game, so, you know, to, to do that. And then obviously carry on that form into the Big Bash was awesome. Um, I think that um, that new power play, the, the new four over power play kind of helped my strike rate. You feel like you've got to try and cash in in the first <laughs> first four overs. So you're just teeing off pretty much from ball one. So, uh, yeah, Australia is a place where I've had so many great memories. I played there club cricket as a kid, you know, all the way through, um, you know, different stages, different um, standards of cricket. It's just somewhere I really enjoy my, really enjoy my cricket. So to, to put in a, a great season for the Thunder was, you know, felt top draw. You've enjoyed Australia, but you've enjoyed all around the world in T20 cricket. I think since the start of 2019, only Barbara Zahn's got more runs than you in T20. How much has it helped you just focusing in on white ball cricket? And do you miss red ball cricket at all? Um, I think, it, to, to be honest with you, no. I, I did wonder when I retired if I'd miss it at all. But to be honest, I, I, I haven't uh, been able to focus all my energy and my mindset onto to one specific format. I think it's really helped. I think... At the top of the order, particularly, um, they're two very, very different games, particularly in England. You know, one's about patience, judging, you know, when to, you know, leaving well and, and where your stump is. The other one's about going gung-ho pretty much at the top of the order. So, I felt I really struggled chopping and changing between formats, um, you know, in my mid-20s. So, to be able to focus on one format, I think, has, has made, um, you know, a huge difference. And I feel like I'm really, you know, starting to hit my peak in that format now. So when you look at yourself now, what, what are your goals? What do you want to do? What's that ultimate ambition for Alex Howes? I'd love to, I'm obviously desperate to get back into the England team. I think you, you, the pinnacle of cricket is still international cricket. Um, so I'd love to try and force my way back into that limited overside um, somehow. Um, and, it, and if not, then I think my goal is to, you know, I want to, when I retire, I want to have, you know, try and have the most T20 runs in the world. It's obviously going to be some effort to try and catch up someone like Chris Gale, who's probably got, I think thirteen or fourteen thousand, but I think I'm on around eight thousand. So if I have a good, you know, good six or seven years in T20 cricket, then um, you know, I really feel like I want to push and achieve that as a personal goal. Let's look back then. Let's go back to that 2019 when you you got the news, you'd failed the recreational drugs test, and then you know you found out you weren't going to be in that World Cup squad. What sort of happened since then? What? How mentally did that affect you? For the, oh, for the first, yeah, for the first. You know, watching the whole thing unfold was was sickening. You know, when you get that news, it's quite hard to you know, it's really quite hard to put into words that feeling of you know when you're told you know the the, the bad news. It's genuinely really hard to describe. You know, that drive home, that drive home was probably the worst I've ever felt in my life, to be perfectly honest. Um, but you know, putting that aside, to watch the you know to actually sit there and watch the guys go on and win the World Cup was was a weird feeling because you feel sick at yourself for not being part of it, but then you feel so much elation for, you know, you know how much work's gone into it over the last four, you know, four or five years since the previous World Cup. So it was obviously, you know, personally devastating and gutting to miss out, but also, you know, you feel proud to have played, you know, you feel proud to have played a part in, in that success of a team. So, um, yeah, obviously it's, it was a, it was a very, very difficult time, but it was, it was two years ago now. And I feel like I've, you know, I feel like I've used it to my, you know, tried to make a positive out of it and, make myself a better bloke and make myself a better cricketer as well to try and do whatever I can um, on and off the field to get back into that side and, and, and try and win another World Cup. Alex, we all make mistakes. None of us are perfect. But to correct those mistakes, you first have to acknowledge that you have a problem. 
and then you have to do something about it. First of all, did you acknowledge you had a problem that needed solving and what have you done about it? Um, yeah, it's, um, it, was, it was a very different stage in my life. At, at the time, I don't think I was in a great headspace ever since, ever since the whole Bristol thing. I feel like it was, I was in a bad place off the field. Um, and to, you know, you, you do stupid things. Like you said, people make stupid mistakes. And, and when you suddenly have something that means so much to you taken away from you, you suddenly realise those changes you need to make. And, and that's something I really feel like I've done over the last couple of years. In a, as a, in a headspace, I feel like this is as happy as I've been in a long time off the field and as confident as I've been in a long time on the field. So I've tried to make the best out of a bad situation and you know, hopefully, hopefully people can, can forgive and forget. You've also, um, just a lifestyle change, wasn't it? Last summer, last year, you moved away from Nottingham. You've moved out into the sticks just to get away from the glare of things. Are you enjoying that sort of quiet time? And has it helped 100%, 100%. you? 100%. And now, now a grumpy old man who lives out in the countryside, <laughs> really, <laughs> really enjoying the peace and quiet. Um, yeah, I think that's helped big time. I, I've moved probably 20, 25 minutes out of town into, into a small village, much quieter place, much better lifestyle. Um, and it's something I really enjoy now, peace and quiet. Um, so yeah, that's I think that's that's definitely helped. That was that was um, that was a couple of years ago now, just after it all happened. So I feel like that's definitely helped, in, in, uh, and it's something I enjoy as well. Owen Morgan said that he'd lost trust, or that you'd lost trust with the team. How can you get that back though? If you're not involved in it, what can you do? Do you think to try and show them that? Come that World T20, you're a runner for that. You should be in that setup, not just with the runs you've scored, but with everything else. Again, that's that's a really good question. Something that I've been thinking to myself. Actually, I'm not. I don't really know how that looks like because that, that's one of the things that's been said in the media. There needs to be a certain amount of time and and trust rebuilt. And I feel like I feel like two years is a is a very long time in an international sportsman's career. Um, you guys know two years is is a very, very long time at, at the peak of your cricket. So. Um, I feel I feel like I'd like I'd like to have a conversation with with some people over the, hopefully in the, the next couple of months to see how I can go about regaining trust as I'm obviously currently not around the squad. So I feel like that's something that could be difficult to do if you're not actually around the people that you need to to win the trust back. So um, you know, hopefully I can have those conversations about you know how I can if if there is a way back into the team and and if there is no way back into the team, it'd be nice just to have some clarity. You know, I think one way or the other. So just to be clear on that then, so you haven't spoken to Ed Smith or Ashley Giles, anyone involved in that setup, Owen Morgan, since what happened two years ago? Uh, at the moment, no. Um, I, I, I sent a, a message to Morgie, I think it was around April last year, just who went into lockdown, but obviously that had only been a year since it happened. So he obviously wasn't ready to, to talk about anything like that. But um, you know, hopefully in the, in the coming months, hopefully there's some conversations that can be had you know, one, one way or the other. All you can do really then on the field is keep doing what you're doing, going around playing the world in all the T20 competitions that are going on and doing as well as you possibly can, I suppose. I think so. Yeah, For the time being, yeah, that's, that's all I've been focused on doing is, is trying to show people that I'm still good enough to, to play cricket at a level and that you know, I've, I've made some, some really positive lifestyle changes as well in the last couple of years. So, um, I, I guess that's all I can do and, and hopefully something comes of it in, in the coming months. How difficult is it being um, a franchise player? What are the perils? I know the, the good side of it is you've given up red ball cricket and you can focus on one, one format. What are the difficult sides of just being a franchise player travelling the world? It's a lot of time in hotels and around, and around new environments. You're always chopping and changing different teams, but in some ways that can be a positive. You're always, you know, you're always mixing and mingling with different personalities and, 
and different cricketing brains uh, and also playing different countries. I think one of the challenges of, of playing franchise cricket is only, I guess, if you play five tournaments, only one of them's a home tournament. So you're, you're constantly playing in foreign conditions. So I feel like it's really good for, for developing different aspects of your game and, and things that work in, in different countries. So um, it's definitely challenging on the cricketing front. And I think the standard of, of these tournaments are constantly getting better and better, um, especially as you play with and against so many guys who know a lot about your game. So you always have to look to, to improve and, and keep getting better. Talk about the standard there. PSL starts Saturday. Um, what's the standard like in that comp? From what we've seen, it looks excellent. I think it's really, really good. It's right up there for me. Um, I think particularly as a batter, you know, Pakistan have always been blessed with, with world-class fast bowling options. Um, so I think as, as a batter coming to play over here, it is a really good challenge. Um, I think in Pakistan, you often get good pitches. So if you do, if you do find yourself in good form, you can, you can score some good runs, but I think the, the quality of fast bowling in, in particular in this country is, is a real challenge. What about your game then? All right, You haven't played international cricket for a little while, but do you think you're playing better than you were two or three years ago or what? How, does it, how do you see your game at the moment? I for sure think I'm playing, playing a lot better, but I guess it's hard to tell when you've not played it for a couple of years. Um, I, still feel like, I still feel like I'm sharp. I still feel fit. Um, I still feel like I can, I can challenge the best bowlers in the world. So, um, I definitely feel like I'm good enough to still be playing. Um, and hopefully, yeah, hopefully I get another crack. Are you a fretter? Because I noticed Kizzy reeled off those stats. He didn't mention the two golden ducks in the first three innings of the big bats. <laughs> Do you fret or is that just T20 cricket? You have to put that behind you. 100%. I think like maybe six or seven years ago, I'd have had a panic on after two golden ducks and start overthinking, <laughs> overthinking things. But there's been... I think there's been a couple of times you know, I had a really bad year for knots this year and a, a couple of years ago I struggled in the CPL so I know that that can be the nature of the T20 beast sometimes that you can go you can go through a little phase where you don't know what end of the bat to hold and then you can go through a phase where you feel like you can't get out and you can smack it everywhere so I just um, I think I was a little at the start of the big bash I was a little bit rusty um, hadn't played a huge amount of cricket my confidence wasn't that high after the knots summer and the two-week quarantine obviously wasn't ideal um, but I had, um, after those two golden ducks, we had a few days off and I just, um, I cracked down in the nets. My feet weren't moving. So I just tried to be a bit more positive with my feet early on in the innings. And that's something that really, really has worked for me. Um, and it's, I guess that has been one of our weaknesses in the past is, is getting bold with a nit backer. So I've just tried to be you know, early on in my innings, um, just be a little bit more positive with my feet. Right. I'm going to give you a choice here. It's a little bit unfair because you could do all of these things. We understand. But I'm going to give you the choice. You can go around and play the IPL, make a lot of money doing all of that, or you can win the World T20 for England, what would you want to do? Oh, that, is the, <laughs> that is putting me on the spot, isn't it? I get, you, you'd have to you'd want to take the World Cup, don't you? Like, you just, they're the things that you remember for the rest of your life, aren't they? Those, those medals and, and winning huge competitions like that. So you're snapping up the World Cup, but I'd love to, I'd love to feel like I could do both. So I'm going to sit on the fence and <laughs> say I'd, lo I'd love, to, love to do both. Alex, thank you very much. That's been excellent. Uh, he was very good there, Alex Howes. Bumble, I'm going to come to you first. Two years now, has he done his time? Should he be available for selection? Well, is he one of the best players? Question one. Is he one of the best players? I think he's devastating, so he'd, he'd get a tick from me. I've written lots of things down. Folks grow up. He said there that he's grown up. He's got away into a different lifestyle. I'm also a believer in giving people a second chance. You know, you get one strike, you've messed up, and certainly you can come back. What it's also showing is that it's Morgan's team. You mentioned Morgan there. I got in touch with Morgan. 
So if there's going to be a conversation, who would trigger that conversation? Would it be Hales himself, Morgan himself, Smith, or Taylor? Now, he'll know Taylor from his Nottingham connection. So who would trigger that conversation? Is he one of the best? Yeah, he is. And so he can be a devastating player and you want these players around. Bumble, I'll come back in here. Who should trigger that conversation? Who should be the one to make sort of the two meet together? It's very interesting that what we saw there, that he, he sort of pushed it at one side, that he tried to get in touch with Owen Morgan in April. Um, but Morgan wasn't ready for the conversation. He'd not mentioned Smith, the chief selector, or Taylor, his mate, um, or the coach, in fact. I missed Silverwood out. I think Silverwood's out of this completely. And so it'd be hails for me to sort of be a bit proactive and, and say, look, give me some clarity. And that's, he mentioned that, didn't he? I want clarity. And I think that's reasonable. And so he might be the one to trigger the conversation collectively with the four people that I've mentioned. What about you, Ath? How do you see it? Should, should, has he done his time? Should he be available for selection? Well, he is available for selection, obviously. Um, my starting point is that good players win cricket matches and therefore you want to try and accommodate good players as far as you can. Um, the fascination with leadership and management, captaincy, whatever you want to call it, uh, is this balance between allowing individuals freedom and leeway to express themselves and be the best that they can be whilst all the time getting the whole team pulling in the same direction. And sometimes there's a tension uh, between those two things. And it's an old story. We've seen it happen on many occasions, and, and clearly it's happened a bit with Alex uh, in this situation too. Now, public sympathy will be with Alex Hales, I think, because that's always the case in sport, business, politics, life. People side with the individual over the machine, if you want to call it that, and generally that's a good thing. So public sympathy definitely with Alex Hales. My sympathy actually is with Owen Morgan. I've got a tremendous amount of um, admiration for the way that Morgan has turned England's one-day cricket around. You take that team that he was put in charge of in 2015 and you contrast it with the team that won the World Cup in 2019. He helped develop and create not only the best one-day team in the world, but the champion one-day team in the world. Now, I don't know Owen Morgan that well, but I think I know him well enough to know he's not a vindictive person, but he is a ruthless person and he wants the best for his one-day side. And given what he's done over the four years, you'd have to say that he's England's best ever uh, one-day captain. And therefore, I think he's earned the right to make that decision. Um, we are not in the dressing room. We don't know what goes on. We obviously talk to people, but we're not in there Owen Morgan is, he's leading that team. He's done a damn good job for four years. So I think he's earned the right to make that call. Yeah, completely agree with all that. But he's also earned the right to change his mind and realise that the lad has changed his ways, if he has changed his ways. We've only had Alex's opinion on this and we've only had Alex's input. And Ath is right, we don't know what happened in that dressing room. I'll pick up Bumble on one point. It was actually his... Second misdemeanor, the failed drugs test. He was also involved in the Bristol incident. They sat down after the Bristol incident as a team and drew some lines that couldn't be crossed. And Alex Hales crossed those lines and Morgan was done with him. 
but I'm, I'm afraid he has served that time now. It's been two years for this lad. And even in that interview, he said, okay, give me some kind of clarity. Even if you're not going to pick me under this regime, just tell me, sorry, Alex, we are not picking you. While I'm in charge, I am not picking you so that he can move on with his life. They're sort of leaving him hanging out there. People make mistakes. People grow up. People learn from those mistakes. There is a duty of care as well. I was amazed that Shane Bond, his Sydney Thunder coach, he said Alex Hales has really grown up. He said that no one from the ECB had bothered to pick up the phone and speak to Shane Bond and ask him, what is Alex Hales like off the field at the moment? We see him getting all these runs, and that's not our concern. What's his behaviour? What's he doing off the field? Surely a call to Shane Bond at Sydney Thunder to see if he is a change man would have been the way to go. There's got to be some kind of discussions. I just think we are now pushing it to a stage where this lad has been a little bit hard done by, unless we don't know something, unless he's an incredibly good bluffer and something's going on behind the scenes. I think he's done the time, lads. I think he's a very good player. And I think part of leadership and captaincy is handling difficult people who have difficult issues, who do things wrong. 11 yes men don't, don't always win your games. Owen Morgan may, may pick Alex Hales this summer. We don't know uh, what is going to go on uh, with selection. That's all, all ahead, of, ahead of the team. Um, he may well get picked again. Um, and I, I agree with uh, second chances. You're talking to somebody who pushed hard, as hard as anyone, for Mohamed Amir to be given a second chance uh, in cricket. So I, I agree with all that. Um, but I do think Owen Morgan, given what he has done with this team, uh, the way that he's handled this team and turned it into an absolute winning machine has earned the right to make the call. Well, even though, Ath, you've got Alex Hales, who's top run scorer in the Big Bash, you've got Jason Roy, who's struggling, to be fair. So you could argue that on form alone, on ability alone, there is a chance that he should be in that squad, even if I, Morgan, disagrees. But you would just go with Morgan regardless. Yeah, as I say, he may well get picked between now and the World T20. England may well pick him. We don't know what is going down the line. Um, but I've got a lot of confidence in Owen Morgan, given what he has done over the last five years, that he's likely to make the right call because he hasn't made too many wrong calls so far uh, in the five-year period that he's been in charge of the one-day team. Right, OK, we're going to take another break. And after that, we might continue on this theme a little bit and talk about managing players and some of the more difficult characters. Certain players just exist on a different plane altogether. Best I had the pleasure of being 22 yards away from. Talent-wise, I don't think there's many better players who've ever played for England. Hi folks, my name's Kevin Peterson, and you better believe it. We didn't really fall out, it just didn't quite connect. They were polar opposites. It was a car crash waiting to happen. You are texting the opposition players or because direct messaging him. I just don't see how you can do that personally. I don't think he should have played for England again. Memories. You're playing for your country. 
Some guys didn't want to get selected for England because of what Broad, Anderson, Pryor, Swan were like. Everybody lost. Kevin lost. England cricket fans, I think, were cheated out of their best, most flamboyant player. It was a lose-lose for everybody. If Andy Flower was this great coach, do you think Duncan Fletcher would have allowed that to happen? You were fine until the IPL came. And then your eyes and your wallet was... It was what you wanted. It was where you wanted to be. An extraordinary innings from an extraordinary player. I thought he was a genius. I loved him. How many players now trying to play like Kevin Peterson? All of them. Because they were my mates. I mean, I cannot watch that promo without doing that all the time. I think I do that every other day almost. As good as it is, but you can still watch it on demand. And now let's speak. I don't want to just speak about KP and stuff. But one thing that I've been thinking, I thought this yesterday when speaking to Alex Hales, Ath, I'm going to come to you, is that Owen Morgan has used this term, we've lost trust. But then I started thinking, and people, if you imagine yourself working in an office, all these things, do you trust everyone that you play with? Did you trust everyone that you played with? And is that absolutely vital to a good team, Af? I think this is the fascination of the game, actually. Um, It's this balance between the individual and the team. It's not like a rowing eight, for example, uh, cricket. You know, in a rowing eight, you need everybody doing exactly the same thing Uh, to be successful. But cricket, as we all know, over five days, an individual can shape that game, can change the game. Joe Root can get 200 in Sri Lanka and win the game off his own bat. Uh, And that is the greatness of the game, really. You've got this ability for individuals to shape the game, but he also can't do it totally on his own. He needs other people around him. So this balance between individual flair, individual freedom, individual expression and the whole team pulling together in one direction. And that really is the art of leadership, trying to balance those two things. But in that balance will come tension um, because the great players, as we know, can sometimes be a little awkward or truculent or a bit different. Um, People are different. And so you have to kind of allow that, allow that freedom, but you've got to try and get everybody pulling in the same direction as well. And I think that's the fascination of the game it's why these issues have always come up in the past and will continue to come up. Um, and how far you give players leeway and, and how far you don't is, is really a matter for the individual captain. I always err towards the individual because I think in, in cricket, particularly over five days, it's your great players uh, that, that win cricket matches. It, that old Steve Archibald quote, isn't it, about the team, team spirit uh, glimpsed in the aftermath of victory. Well, sometimes it's elusive, that team spirit. It's the great players that win games. And your point about an office environment is a very good one. In a cricket team, I think you need to respect people. You need to respect what they do. You are not going to be best mates with them all. You're not going to invite them around for dinner at your house all the time. You're not going to send them Christmas cards but you do have to respect what they do. Uh, you have to respect each other and you have to hope that you're all pulling in the right direction. NASA, how important then is team spirit? How do you see it? Team spirit over great players or good players that might be difficult. What's more important? Well, I mean, team spirit's always there when you're winning. Um, that team spirit for that great 
uh, Andrew Strauss, Andy, Andy Flowerside went out the window when they were being drubbed down under, didn't it? Um, I'm always erring towards great players. Cricket is a unique game, really. It is very much a team game, but it's also such an individual game, as Ath touched on. When you push someone out of the door at 20 for two, you don't want to push your best mate out there. You don't want to push a nice bloke out there. You want to push someone who's going to go out there and take it to the opposition and win you that game. And I'm afraid it's not the general rule, but it applies a lot of the times. Some of these geniuses like Warren and Botham and Flintoff and Lara and Peterson, and there's been so many others I can mention, their greatness and their genius also means that they are slightly different. They think they are wired differently, and you have to manage that in a team environment. It's an interesting one. In that documentary, I spoke to Andrew Strauss. Athers had a, a, has a lot of admiration for Owen Morgan, which I have. But I also have a lot of admiration for Andrew Strauss, the leader, the thinker. He thinks things through in such clarity. It's unbelievable. And I asked him about Peterson. Why not just pick Peterson? What does it matter what he's like? What does it matter if he's texting the opposition? Just pick him and make him and use him. You know, in the same way you could argue that Peterson was using England and, and moves on, use Peterson to get you to be the best side in the world. So Peterson got England to number one in the world and then Texgate happened and they left him out for the South Africa game at Lords, if you remember. South Africa win and go to number one in the world. And what Strauss said about that was short term against long term, Nass. Short term, the right thing to do is to pick Peterson. He'll win you the game. Long term, when you're trying to change the culture of a team, when something like Texgate happens, you have to chop it down right at the knees. You have to stop that immediately if you're trying to change a culture of a team. But I reiterate, I will have that best player every single time because you could argue they never really replaced Kevin Peterson, did they? You got to it in the end there, Nass. I was going to ask you whether you'd agree as a as a former captain that there may come a point, you know, you give individuals maximum leeway because we know that great players win games. Does there come a point where a captain has to say uh, enough? I mean, you, you kind of answered it there with, with Andrew's last point that you there, made. There are, there are definitely red lines and texting the opposition bowlers about how to get you out, your captain out, is probably a, a red line, a line that you can't cross. But I think eventually, and this goes back to the hail stuff, eventually you realise that you, you have to move on, everyone has to move on, and you go back to picking your best players. I, I just don't like this. these nice, maybe because I wasn't one, but these nice <laughs> lads and everyone loves each other and everyone goes out for dinner. We know what. I'm speaking of Keezy. Keezy's WhatsApping someone else, slagging me off. We know how everyone works. Everyone <laughs> behind the scenes has got whispers. That's what happens in dressing rooms. You just try and make the best of it. And you just, I mean, Michael Holding, we speak to Michael Holding, that great West Indian side. Did they all get on? No. We have Shane Warne in our commentary box. Did that great Australian side. You only have to see Shane Warne now talk about Ricky and... And Steve Ward, they all get on. Gilchrist, no. So it's about great players, not team spirit. The Old Trafford dressing room, both of my era and Bumble's era, was notoriously uh, 
tension-filled, to put it that way, wasn't it? And I look back at, at those times with great fondness, actually, some of the arguments and the rucks and the ructions and, and issues between players. It was all good fun. The, the one word that both of you have come out with is respect. And it's when you go out onto the field, you would respect what each other does. You, obviously, you want your best players in your eleven. You want the best players that you got. Mavericks, you need Mavericks in your team. Of course you do. You need special players. And these Mavericks are usually special players. They're usually very good. So you've got to work hard to get a collective, to get a team. Forget team spirit. Come back to team respect individuals. Of course, they don't all go out mob-handed 16 of them for dinner because we're all good pals. That just doesn't happen. I think you've got to work hard with a dialogue to get the collective pulling in the right direction on the field of play. I watched a documentary, Liverpool Football Club, and I think it was Brendan Rodgers, who was manager at the time. And you know the players are doing a, a sit-down, warm-up stretch. And he's come out and he had a, a fair amount of authority. And he, he got one player, he just gave him the, can we just have a word? And he walked, you could tell, this player has messed up. And so the dialogue, he, he took him round the field, he took him away, he pulled him out of the pack and took him around and there's a dialogue. They're talking it through. Brendan Rodgers will be getting his point over to the player. The player might be coming back and saying, well, I'm not happy with this. And so they may just have thrashed it out. You talk about these great teams. The Yorkshire team in the 50s was as good as it gets in county cricket. They've got so many strong characters. They used to argue like cat and dog from start to finish between each other, with the committee, with the spectators, but they kept winning. As soon as they walked onto that field, they knew that Truman, Illingworth, Claus, Taylor, they, they were special as a team. And then when they came off, they'd start arguing again. So the players themselves, and you, you lads all know, you decide your team culture. I think that's important. What's the culture of the team? And getting back to what you said about Shane Warren, our great lad, he might just watch this, he might, our great colleague, we have to say it, we would all agree that Steve Waugh is the best captain that Australia <laughs> have ever had. <laughs> but I, I always find that interesting because I've had coaches that talk about how the culture's wrong. We need to get the culture right. We need to get the culture right. And I always just think, just give me the best players. Then it will take care of itself. But how do you get this thing, this sort of mythical thing that you need at? of a culture that's right. How do you do that? And who should drive that culture in the right direction? Well, I'm a firm believer that players control things. Captains and players drive things in a cricket team, unlike some other team games, football, rugby, where the managers and the coaches are far more influential. Um, it happened with England, didn't it? Um, famously, 2018, that meeting in that hotel in Colombo, Sri Lanka, where Morgan and Root, both captains of the Test Match and One Day team, sat their players down uh, and they drove through between them, captains and players, drove through this new culture um, that the team have been abiding by ever since. So I think it has to be player-driven. Uh, but I'll tell you one thing, this debate that we're having won't go away in cricket. It's been an, it's a debate that's as old as the hills. 
And it, there will be many more instances of players being left out for behavioural issues or whatever because of the unique nature of the game, the balance between the team but the opportunity for great players to shape games more than most other games. And that creates a delicious tension uh, and it won't be the last time we have this debate, that's for sure. How, how did you go about it, Nas? You had all kinds of players. You took over a side that was just starting to turn it around or you were the one who started to turn it around. How did you try and do that to toughen up that England team? How did you, what was your thing when you sat at home and thought, this is how I'm going to do it. These are the people I'm going to pick and why? I mean, there were other things that poor old Bumble and Athens, Stewie and Gucci didn't have before me, like central contracts, which are a huge importance. You might think, well, what's that got to do with what we're talking about? But when your main team is England and everything is done to drive you to be a better England cricketer, then you can change the culture of your team. You're not an Essex player turning up playing for England occasionally. So that was a massive help. But in general, pick on character, pick people on character. And this is my point about 20 for two. I didn't look at what people were doing at county scores and what they were doing when one man and a dog was watching and it was easy and no one, you know, wasn't that much pressure on what were they doing when they were under pressure? Who do you want in difficult situation? Who are those characters in difficult situations? And Ath is absolutely spot on. And even as much as management of a team, you know, myself and Duncan Fletcher or whoever can drive the change of that team, but actually it's got to be individuals. Individuals have to be brave enough to pick up other individuals in that team and not feel as if they were going to be, you know, vilified for it. You're under pressure. If you turn to Andrew Flintoff in the morning and say, come on, Freddie, you know, do this. You're not quite on time. You're 10 minutes late or someone's late and someone says, hold on, we were leaving for the ground at nine o'clock. It's five past nine. You're under pressure to make sure that you're not late the next time the bus leaves. But you, people will look up and go, well, hold on, he's spoken up here. We, we've got to pick ourselves up on this. We have to change the culture of a team from within but you have to also realise that you have to have people in there that do things differently. You know, I was sick of hearing, oh, you know, on tours, everyone has to go out together. Everyone has to be matey. You don't have to be matey. It's like any other walk of life. It's like when we go out in the good old days that we were on, you know, outside broadcast and we were at grounds and everything, you wouldn't be ringing up everyone in the sky commentary room and whatever going, what's everyone doing tonight? A table for 15. You know, I certainly wouldn't want to be going out with Key Flintoff Harmison every single <laughs> night of a tour. You feel you pick up your mates, you go out. <laughs> that doesn't mean you're not a team man, but it just means in your own time, when you need to relax, you find your own way of relaxing. And it's a management that understands that, that gives room for individuals to express themselves individually, either at the ground or away from the ground. See, I like the fact, I will tell everyone that NASA calls myself, Freddie and Harmy, the axis of evil. I'm not sure why, <laughs> but anyway, the only thing, I've listened to all of this now about culture, you know, people turn up on time, wear the right clothes, all of that type of stuff. But the bottom line is, and what you said about Andrew Strauss, at some stage you have to just say enough is enough, team culture is more important. England haven't been to number one in the world since they got rid of Kevin Peterson. So I don't know when the long term is going to outweigh the short term with axing Kevin Peterson back then because we're still waiting almost for England to get back to the top. But surely, Bumble, is it not just 
pick the best players and it's your job as a coach and a captain to make them fit in your side. If you've got a few people who are a pain in the backside, that's fine. But you're the one as coach, you have to make them all work so they don't end up killing each other. Yeah, to a certain extent. But if team culture, I'm with that, that, that team culture comes from the team itself. You mentioned Kevin Peterson there. I can discuss that forever in my own personal view. He should never have been banned. Never have been banned. You might just get that dialogue going. Look, we think that you're messing around. You're being a bit of the this, that and the other. And we'd like it to stop. And this is how we're going to stop it. You might make him kick his heels, but you don't ban him forever. He's the best player that you've got. They're always a little bit different. So the team itself decides its culture driven by the captain. And that's what Ath has just said, that Root 2018 and Morgan sat down and put a pathway of team culture. This is how we're going to behave. And so there's got to be a constant dialogue. You will have mavericks and they'll give you a bit of a headache from time to time. But, you know, you should be able to manage that. I mean, something else I'd mention, Rob, is that you asked me about what, what we changed a little bit was I always felt that we always looked at what people couldn't do as opposed to what they could do. You know, like, like I said with Hales there, none of us are perfect. We all have mistakes. We all do things wrong. And I always felt in selection, I'd sit down in a selection, it would be, you know, Andrew Caddick doesn't bowl him out in the first innings. He just bowls him out when pressure's off in the second innings. Graham Thorpe doesn't do throwdowns with other players in the morning. We always looked at what people couldn't do. You know, in that doco with Kevin Peterson there, if I said to Kevin or our producer said to Kevin, 10 o'clock, meet, Kevin would text back, what do you want me to wear? Kevin would be there on time. Kevin would want to know exactly what the questions were about. And that was Kevin and how good Kevin was in his preparation, in everything he did. And I sometimes think you forget that with these people. Shane Warne, you know, all the stuff we see of Shane off the field. But I reckon Shane Warne's attention to detail when he played the game of cricket was second to none, as we see in the commentary box. He's got a very good cricket brain and someone you would want to have on your side, even if you didn't have him as vice captain. So I think in any team environment, don't just look at all the negatives, all the things that people can't do. Try and look at the good things that they bring to your team. There's plenty there. I suppose the why the people we're not thinking about is the selectors. They then have as much of an important role as anyone. As far as keeping on, I think what, what you'd ask for is consistency. And I think Bumble's hit the nail on the head. You know, it is good to talk, a bit of dialogue. And to tie all this in, from what I got from that Alex Hales interview, is he just wants a chat. Just please tell me, mm. am I still in the frame or have you completely just discarded me forever so I can move on with my life? So Bumble, as ever, gets it right. Just have a chat and get things out in the open. So if you're using anything other than Indeed for your hiring, you are wasting your time. You can hire great people faster with Indeed and only pay for results and get back time in your schedule. Indeed.com is a hiring site that helps you find quality candidates with Indeed Instant Match. Indeed searches through the millions of resumes in their database to help show you great candidates instantly, like that. And now, with Indeed's new Instant Match feature, you can view quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed fit your description immediately after upgrading a job post. 
Unlike some other hiring sites, Indeed gives you full control and payment flexibility, delivering a quality shortlist faster, and there's no long-term contracts either. You can pause your account at any time, and you only pay for what you need, and they help ensure that you get and show up at the right place at the right time in front of the right candidates. According to Indeed data, candidates invited to apply through Instant Match are three times more likely to apply to your job than those who only see it in search. So you want your quality shortlist fast? You need Indeed. Right now, our listeners get a free $75 credit to upgrade your job post at indeed.com slash SPI. This is Indeed's best offer available anywhere. Get a free $75 credit at indeed.com slash SPI. That's indeed.com slash SPI. Offer valid through March 31st. Terms and conditions apply. So as you know, I've been in the podcasting space for a very long time now. Somebody came up to me the other day and they're like, Pat, dude, you're one of the old guys in the space. I love it. You've been doing this for so long. And I'm like, Thank you. (laughs) Anyway, I've been really lucky to produce some really successful podcasts, multiple podcasts and also courses. And part of my success is due to how particular I've been with some of the tools that I use. And in the podcasting space, my favorite tool is Buzzsprout. It is hands down the best tool for starting a podcast in 2021. It's amazingly easy to use as a podcast host. It's backed by a team that really cares about your success. They've been on the show before as guests, in fact. And like all podcasting hosting services, they get your show listed in all the major directories with, I think, like one click, you can make it happen, almost one click. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, et cetera. But what makes Buzzsprout different is they actually provide some really cool advanced tools that take the time to ensure everything is super easy to use. They have this thing called the magic mastering feature, which is so cool, which means literally you just flip a switch and every episode you upload is gonna be mastered properly, which matches all the levels in your show. So if you have somebody who's really soft, it's gonna bring it up. And that way, if a person's listening to your show in the car, they don't have to like turn it up when somebody's soft and then their ears blow out when you come back. It's just so, so good. All of this and so many features I didn't mention are available in Buzzsprout with plans starting at just $12 a month. They're an absolute wonderful partner and I've worked with them to offer my listeners an additional 33% more time on whichever plan you choose. Yes, if you go through our link, you get 33% more time added to your account. So let's make 2021 the year you start a podcast. Just head over to smartpassiveincome.com slash buzzsprout. Again, that's smartpassiveincome.com slash buzzsprout. And I'll see you on all the directories. Let's do this. So podcasting. In 2020, pretty interesting. A couple things happened. Number one, we passed 1 million total podcasts. Number two, pandemic. It affected numbers. And number three, now that we're in 2021, there's some new stuff we need to pay attention to. And I thought, you know what? I'm gonna find somebody who has access to data that I don't have access to so we can have the best and most up-to-date information about what is happening in the podcasting space right now Whether you're a podcaster or not, this information will help you because whether you get onto other podcasts or you are creating a podcast of your own, you'll have more information to know what to do with so that you can make sure that you spend your time exactly where you need to spend it. And so we're bringing in the head of marketing over at Buzzsprout, which is our preferred and recommended hosting provider for audio for your podcast. Buzzsprout is the place. If you wanna check them out, smartpassiveincome.com slash buzzsprout, you get some extra time on your plan if you go through that link. But anyway, we're gonna speak to Albin Brook, again, head of marketing who has access to all this crazy information. This is a bonus episode of the Smart Passive Income podcast because this stuff is important. There's some big numbers that we're talking about and very surprising, almost like (gasps) gasping numbers kind of stuff. And so make sure you stick around. Let's cue the intro, here we go. Welcome to the Smart Passive Income Podcast, where it's all about working hard now so you can sit back and reap the benefits later. 
And now your host. His perfect day would be a boat on the lake with a fishing pole and his family. Pat Flynn. Hey, it's Pat here. Thank you so much again for joining me. And today we're talking with Albin Brook, head of marketing, to talk about some of the surprising things happening in 2021 with regards to podcasts and what we could do to better prepare ourselves to take advantage of this amazing platform. Obviously, you're listening to a podcast right now, so you understand the power behind it. You know what a podcast is, but what is going on out there in the world right now? Let's talk about it. Here he is, Albin Brook, head of marketing at Buzzsprout. Albin, welcome to the Smart Passive Income Podcast. Thanks for being here, my friend. Thanks, Pat. Thanks for having me. Uh, excited to chat with you, especially with your work over at Buzzsprout and all the access you have to data and all this understanding about the industry that we just as podcasters often don't have access to. And whether you are thinking about starting a podcast or you have one already, I'm really excited to have the ability to sort of tap into what's going on on your end. But I'd love to know sort of what is your role at Buzzsprout and kind of we'll just take it from there. Yeah. So I'm the head of marketing at Buzzsprout, but that allows me to do a lot of things. So I do, we do a lot of content marketing and so a large portion of what I do now is I'm a teacher and I'm helping people get their podcast started, evaluate if it's the right channel for them, sometimes telling them that maybe it isn't. And we just get to interact and you know go along this journey with everybody else in podcasting. That's cool. I love how you had mentioned like, maybe this isn't for everybody. Can you speak to who should be podcasting and who shouldn't be podcasting? Oh man. Yeah, I love that question. I often frame it in this way that it's like, when people ask about podcasting, I'm saying, well, we have to first look at what are your goals for why do you want to become a content creator in the first place? And do those your goals align with podcasting? I'm perfectly happy to tell people, you know, you're trying to sell t-shirts that you should probably be on Instagram. And if you're just trying to get the largest audience possible and just get people to pay attention to you, TikTok is actually a great way to do that. So there's lots of different mediums for you to be on. But if you want to be doing something with podcasting, that's on-demand, long-form audio content that people can be doing something else while they're listening. If your goals align with that type of content, this is just a brilliant medium and one that I've fallen in love with over the last six years. So what would be an example goal, to be more specific, that a podcast would lend itself perfectly to? So anybody who wants to discuss something and go in depth, really get into the nuance, teach, unpack arguments, or bring people along a long journey. If what you're saying to someone doesn't fit into a tweet and it doesn't fit into maybe a blog post because you want it to be a little bit more informal, that's where podcasting really shines. You don't have to have a clean, crisp, single answer. You can instead explore an idea. You know, some podcasts are doing it for as long as a short audiobook. You can really get into the nitty gritty and help people think through things with a little bit more nuance. Cool. I love that answer. Thank you. And then, you know, I know you at Buzzsprout have a ton of data and stuff. I'd love to know sort of where we at in the state of podcasting in terms of just like how many are there? I think a lot of people are considering starting a podcast, but everything has been about podcasting the last few years and it's seemingly very saturated. We're seeing a lot of celebrities come on platforms. They're ranking with all these NPR and super high-end shows now. How can we even compete? Can you give us some insight? Oh, man. Well, when something's growing, the thing you always feel is, oh, if I'd only started a podcast back when I thought about it. I mean, we see it right, right. now with like people <laughs> talking about, well, I heard about Bitcoin years ago. If only I'd bought a bunch of it then and sold it now, I'd be rich. Mm -hmm. Well, what you're doing is you're actually looking for a reason to be hard on yourself for not starting sooner. So all this data, like let's dive into it. 
but I don't want people to hear it and be hard on themselves for not doing it in the past because the best time to do something is either 10 years ago or to start right now. So hopefully this is encouraging to everybody. There's definitely fewer podcasts than people think. There's probably somewhere in the order of 1.7 million podcasts. But when we started digging into this, and this is data that I pulled from mypodcastreviews.com, over a million of those podcasts aren't launching new episodes. Like they haven't launched a single wow. new episode in 90 days. That's crazy. And, and big shout out to Daniel at My Podcast Reviews as well, by the way. Great service. Okay, so you're telling me that like nearly half of the people who have a podcast aren't actually staying consistent and, and staying up to date with it. Yeah, and then it gets even kind of crazier because then there's also about half of them have never launched 10 episodes. Like they haven't hit the 10 episode mark. Those are mostly going to be people who started podcasting and realized it probably wasn't something they were passionate about. And so when you combine those two data sets together, what we end up with is there's only 377,000 podcasts that have published anything since October, and they have at least 10 episodes ever. So that does not feel like too far of a hurdle to hit if I say, hey, I want to launch a podcast in the next month or two. And I'm just going to commit to doing one a week for two and a half months. Then you're going to be in this kind of rarefied group that is actually makes up something like you're in the top 25%. You're in this rare group that's actually still doing it and has hit that 10 episode mark. Well, then the idea that you might be able to create a podcast in a particular niche, chances are you're going to be the go-to show for it, right? And there's even less people to compete with when you niche down. And so are these numbers worldwide numbers, by the way? Yeah, these are worldwide. And these are, he pulls all this data from iTunes or from the Apple podcasts. And by doing that, he's really seeing across the world in different languages. So it's not all English, how many podcasts there are. That's crazy. I have a lot of people who want to start a podcast in another language, would you just really quick on this topic, because I know we have a lot of international listeners and they want to start a podcast too, but it's like, oh, well, there's not that many listeners. Where do you feel on that in terms of somebody wanting to start, for example, a podcast in Spanish? Yeah, I mean, Spanish speaking podcasts are the fastest growing besides English. There's incredible listenership in all of South America, Central America. Spanish podcasts seem to be doing really, really well. And then a lot of European languages you just see a lot. I feel like I keep running into German and Dutch and French podcasts. And if you're in one of these groups, if you're if you're a native speaker, well, then podcast in the language you feel most comfortable in because, yeah, the audience is smaller. I mean, the listenership is smaller, but the competition is also smaller as well. And this is, again, like you're trying to find something you're passionate about, something you're enjoying. And if you're able to do it for in your native language, you're probably going to have a bit more passion for it anyway. And that's going to allow you to kind of push through when things are tough. Why are 700,000, no, sorry, more, more than a million podcasts not continuing their shows? What gets a person to stop after even less than 10 episodes? I, I think we should talk about this so that people who start a podcast don't fall into that statistic and come out the other end is one of the top 25%. All right. So I like to think of this by analogy with like music. If 
you were to look on TV, you could see lots of people who are famous guitar players. You know, they're in bands, they're playing guitar, and they look amazing. And you get excited and you go, I bet I could do that. And so you go down to your local guitar center and you pick up a guitar and you may only, and I was in this group when I bought my first guitar, you don't even go to 10 lessons. And you realize like the passion isn't there. And there's nothing wrong with that. If the passion isn't there for you to do podcasting, the passion is probably there for something else. And then you can dive into that. So I think for some people, they go into it with maybe a false hope, or they don't have the passion for it, or the goals that they had for podcasting have been filled. So we have a podcast on Buzzsprout that I created with one of my coworkers called How to Start a Podcast. And it was a short series teaching people to podcast. Well, we haven't updated that in about a year because once we put it out as this short series, our goals were completed and it's still getting downloaded 10,000 times a month. And yeah, so same, same like my YouTube videos on the same topic. It's just a lot of the stuff is evergreen and you might not need to have a weekly show for all eternity. You can serve its purpose. Yeah, absolutely. So you've got people who may, it may not have been a great fit. You have people who maybe all of their goals have been satisfied. And I mean, right now, I think there's nobody has a better excuse than COVID and everything that's happened. And so it's perfectly reasonable if people are saying, hey, I've taken a break and I'll come back to this later. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, I know some people, several students of mine in my courses who have started podcasts during COVID and are doing extremely well. Some people who have watched my YouTube videos who are doing extremely well. Uh, I'm thinking of a friend of mine, Martin, who has a podcast about mental health, who's just about to cross a million downloads. Wow. But he's kept up with it, right? And I know that there are times in his history and many other podcasters' histories, including my own, where we go and we start, we're on fire, we're excited, and then it starts to feel like a drag. It starts to feel like a chore. It starts to feel like, I don't even know if I should continue to do this. How do we in that moment determine whether or not it's a pivot point for us to move on to something else or to actually stick it through? Well, I think it's important to, when you get to those moments, identify which pieces you love and which pieces are the drag. So for some people, the editing is really tough. And for them, I would say, hey, let's look at maybe outsourcing that or maybe changing the format of the show to reduce the amount of editing. There are people who love the editing and don't like the prep. They get nervous being behind a mic and that's not the thing they love. Well, I know I have a few friends that have just started. They do editing now and that's their full-time gig. You can find the piece of this that gives you life and fulfills your passion and dive into that wholehearted. So it doesn't mean you have to drop everything about podcasting. It may just mean dropping the aspects you know, that just don't provide life to you. Mm -hmm. Now, that's one thing to start a podcast. Even if we have passion, there's a point at which we need to understand that we have to get other people to find our show and to listen to it. One of the hardest things that I've come to learn about podcasting is it's not like YouTube. There is no algorithm. There's nothing really helping us be found other than hoping sometimes word of mouth. And I know that there's things like guest podcasting and other ways. And, you know, yes, there is SEO on your website for your show notes and such. But what's working right now in 2021? What is working best to have people find the great content that we publish out there that otherwise would have just sit there and, and help nobody. Yeah, so all of the things I would recommend for growing a podcast are always going to come back to leveraging other networks. The Actually, one of the great things about podcasting is that it's not all algorithmically driven. It's not like Twitter that if things are popular, they get retweets, and they become more popular. 
with podcasting, it's actually pretty insulated and most people still find it through word of mouth. Now, that being said, plug into all the other networks that you have access to, especially when you're, when you're getting into more niche podcasts. Let's say I actually ran across this one the other day. There's a breed of dog called a golden doodle that's a poodle bred with a golden retriever. And the people who get these dogs, they love them. Well, somebody started a podcast about it. And so what I would recommend them to do is to go find the Facebook groups dedicated to this dog breed and interact with that group and share insights in the group. But also they can see, oh, you're also doing this podcast. Invite people from that group onto the podcast. Become part of that network so that you can grow your podcast there. You can do this through blogging. You can do this on Quora. You can do this on Reddit, where you're engaging an audience, providing real value, and then also linking back to the podcast. And I love thinking about podcasting in a little bit of a different way than I think about Twitter or I think about social media in general. The engagement rates, I mean, I guess YouTube actually is the best example since we're both doing YouTube and podcasting. On YouTube, we're lucky if we get two and a half to three minutes of engagement on a video. Yeah, it's crazy. It's kind of it's kind of disheartening sometimes. <laughs> I guarantee if you pull open on Apple Podcasts, the, the engagement rates for smart passive income, your engagement rate's going to be something like 30 minutes per episode. And what it means is, yes, the numbers for our YouTube channels can sometimes be 10 times or more larger than our podcast audience, but we're actually getting 10 times the engagement per person on the podcast. And so what that means for me is when I go to conferences, people don't come up and say, oh, I've seen the YouTube channel that has millions of views. They come and say, I actually listened to your podcast that has tens of thousands of views because those are the people who remembered me. Those are the people who have engaged week after week for hours at a time. And they don't just see someone go, oh, I think I saw that on the inter- the guy on the internet one time. They come up and they go, I've been on this journey with you for years. So the, the bar to whether or not I have a successful podcast in my eyes is a hundred people consistently listening to me when I get behind the mic every week. Where on YouTube, I may need to be getting thousands or tens of thousands of views to really feel like I'm making an impact because I know most of my viewers, at least on our channel, are watching for a couple of minutes and then moving on to something else. Yeah, it's very similar on my YouTube channel as well. Plus, we're combating the recommended things and all the ads and like everything that's there. Once a person's listening to your show, they're on a drive, they're on a walk, they're at the gym or what have you. And like you said, you've got them for 30 minutes plus. I can tell you that our show gets anywhere between 65 to 90% retention rate on, on episodes. And that's 30 minutes to one hour's worth of like my voice and or the guest's voice in their head. And that's incredible. And when you want to talk about building a true relationship with your audience and building super fans, as y'all like know that I love to talk about, to me, there's no better medium for sure. And I, th- I think a lot of people are definitely convinced. And of course, there's people here who are podcasters who are listening, who are like, yes, we, we know podcasting, great, totally opportunity. This is why we do it. But we still struggle with findability. Right. And I think I, I want to keep talking about this because this is definitely a struggle. And I do agree with you getting into other networks. And I love the idea of showing up elsewhere. And if you could provide value to that audience or even connect with the founder of those groups and provide that person value, well, then you can get into different people who don't know you exist yet and get the endorsement from the forum owner or the podcast host or wherever. That's where I think there's magic involved. 
What are your thoughts on social media to grow your show and how might one best utilize social media to grow one's podcast? I know that that's often the most common route that people go and then they get disappointed because they're not getting the results that things didn't go as viral as we had hoped. So what are your thoughts on social media for supporting a podcast? If you want to go the social media route, one thing people do that's kind of a red flag is they try to be everywhere. And that's very difficult because the type of content that performs on LinkedIn is very different from the type of content that performs on Twitter or Pinterest. So I would say start with the one social media platform that you personally are drawn towards. So for me, that's probably more Twitter. For a lot of people, it's Instagram. Wherever you are, find yourself spending time and your audience is spending time, that's where you want to be. Start with one. And then just do normal things like try to bring insights from the podcast to that medium to provide value without asking people to go listen to the entire episode. You see people constantly just drop naked links and say, listen to the new episode. That's never going to get an engagement. But if you were to take an audio snippet, Buzzsprout has something built in we call visual sound bites, where you can create an audio snippet with a visual component. You drop that in, people are enticed to listen to 30 seconds. And if there's an insight there that they found compelling, they're much, much more likely to click through. So there's been some studies on this. If we just have a video with just a waveform, you get three times as many clicks as if that was a static image. So that's a pretty quick, easy one. The power of social media is this back and forth conversation. You may put something out about your podcast and then your fans can actually engage with you and you can begin that conversation. So making sure that you're engaging them so that they feel important and they are empowered to then share the podcast with somebody else. We often think of ourselves as being too small to really put ourselves out on social media. I don't have a ton of listeners. People won't engage. I'll feel embarrassed. I, maybe when I'm bigger. But actually, when you're really big, you actually can't respond to every comment. It becomes very difficult. When you're small you actually have this secret power, which is you can treat everybody like a person mm -hmm. and you can respond to everything they say and you can engage with them and then share their insights on the next episode. You could do some really crazy things that it's just not available once you start hitting 10,000 plus downloads per episode. I agree with that. And that's what I tell my students too. It's like your advantage is your ability to make one-on-one -on -one connections with people and to get to know your audience faster and better and understand what their pains are and then be able to probably create better episodes sooner than most people who are so deep into a space already could. And that's that's huge. So thank you for bringing that. There's definitely an advantage to being small. And I do believe social media, although there are a lot of pluses and minuses about it, I think that for me, it's not a place to get more traffic. I can get more traffic from it, but to me, it's like you said, it's about the relationship building, the access, the connections. I think if I am gonna share something, I don't wanna just have like a cookie cutter, oh, here's the you know one minute of the episode and it's just like an interesting part of the conversation. Like I want this little snippet from Buzzsprout and the tool that you have to like go out there and in and of itself, just that snippet alone, provide value to really get people to go, what? Like I need to share this versus having it be used to sort of like tease something that then gets people to click. Because as I always say, like people who see that are people who already know I exist. Mm -hmm. I would much rather have it be something that people who know me want to share with other people. They're not going to share a teaser. They're going to share 
something of value that in that moment, in that minute, does a really good job to sort of like teach or inspire or motivate or educate or whatever. Thoughts on using video along with podcasts. You know, there's this thing called video podcasting, which nowadays people are like, oh, I'm just going to turn on the camera and pop it onto YouTube. You and I know that video podcasting has a history with Apple and it was actually like a podcast that people have to download. And it's not like that anymore. But what are your thoughts on turning on the camera and how to utilize, for example, YouTube to expand the reach, grow the show? Man, for years, I pushed back on it and I didn't think that it was all that great. And then people like Joe Rogan really pioneered the space and proved to us, yeah, when you have incredible guests on your podcast and you can grab snippets. He did two things. And this is the game plan. I mean, it is the perfect way to do video podcasting. He recorded all of his podcasts in video and audio at the same time. Mm -hmm. Audio went out completely unedited as a podcast. Video was put up onto YouTube. He was also live streaming every episode so that people could watch as it was going up. But then he would add an intro and an exit at the end, outro, and he'd put that up. But then they would go over it for, I think, I mean, the rest of the week, and they would grab snippets out, and they would upload those as separate clips. And with those clips, what's so powerful there is those are really nice bite-sized ways for people to get exposed to your podcast. So they see that over on the recommendation tab. For anybody getting started on YouTube, everything is about that recommendations tab. It's the front page of YouTube and the recommendations on the sidebar. And when you can give YouTube these small clips with discernible content, like they promise it's going to be Jamie Foxx talking about his experiences with creativity. And I go, wow, that sounds interesting. I can click that and then I can listen to it. I go, man, this is great. He has a full three-hour interview with Joe Rogan. I would love to listen to that. And if I enjoy the video, then I can go, well, actually, this is a whole podcast. I could just listen to the podcast. And so if you're going to do YouTube or video podcasting, that is 100% the way I would recommend people to do it. Same exact way I recommend to, I've done some workshops on video podcasting. And that's exactly what I teach. The other cool thing about this is then you get to take advantage of YouTube's algorithms. And like you said, the home and the browse and the recommendations. And the cool thing is once people watch one, YouTube's going to do a lot of work for you to get them to see other things. And so you can create multiple clips. I would just recommend that each clip is a standalone about a specific topic with those keywords that are in there, like contained in and of itself, that four minute clip does the job to provide value. And then you can let people go into the rest of the full episode if that happens to be on YouTube on a separate channel or your podcast, even just in audio format. So thank you for that. That that confirms sort of my beliefs about video podcasting and how it should be done. And I've done that every once in a while. I interviewed MKBHD on the podcast. I turned the video on. I have some video clips on YouTube and those have been seen 18,000, 20,000 times. Recently did this with an interview with Rob Maurer from Tesla Daily. And that had gone really well. Plus, because he is a YouTuber, he wants to share YouTube videos with his YouTube audience. And so now I have a, an outlet for them instead of the friction of, hey, YouTubers, go to this podcast. And then, of course, oh, well, which directory? And there's all these other decisions and friction that, that has to happen. One common point that we keep kind of circling around here is we're not asking people to come to us. We are going to our potential audience. On Twitter, we're not asking people, hey, click this link, this scary link, you don't know where it goes, and come listen to my podcast, please. We're saying, hey, we're going to give you all the real insights and the value here. And for people that are on YouTube or you know the audience is on YouTube, 
don't ask them, oh, why don't you just follow me to this podcasting thing and download a new app? We go, we're going to come to you until we can establish a level of credibility that will make you like you'll crave to go get more. And so you're downloading the app. If you're always trying to convince people to take the next action and you have to do a hard sell, it feels like people are getting immune to some of these hard marketing tactics. And I love so much more just giving things away, teaching for free, showing people things. And when they say it's ready for the next step, then you go, I've got a whole podcast. I have a course. I have a product. And then they can come back to you and ask for more on their terms. Thank you for that. As we wrap up here, a couple more talking points. Number one, I wanted to discuss sort of what's coming or what's new in 2021 that we as podcasters can pay attention to that could support our show and provides value. But specifically first, before we sort of open it up, I I would love to discuss if you have any thoughts about Clubhouse. And it's a new app, new social app that sort of just came out that allows for some really cool audio only interactions, but live with people. And I've seen a few podcasters use it very, very smartly to bring their audiences in and have connections with them and almost become even more authoritative. What are your thoughts on Clubhouse and and how might a podcaster use it to the best ability? So I am by no means a Clubhouse expert. I have only showed up to watch. The real value, I think that the thing that Clubhouse is tapping into right now is that we all want connection and we all want to be able to talk to people back and forth and have these conversations. And Clubhouse is providing the back and forth aspect. I would be very interested to see them provide a way that those conversations could actually be saved and then distributed so that people could listen to them later on, on like an open podcast feed, a way that they could be archived. But I've definitely seen podcasters do this where they are having conversations and you can go and make yourself the authority. And there really is a power to putting yourself out there and being one of the first content creators to take a new medium seriously. Yeah, I agree. And it's worth definitely experimenting with, you know, when a new social media platform comes about, it's important to number one, you never know, is it going to go well? Is it going to go away? But either way, you might as well reserve your username, right? Just in case. Yeah, and exactly. So I got I got Pat Flynn there. And now I'm finding I'm having an amazing time connecting with people and getting brought up on the quote unquote stage to then have access to talk to people and then bringing other people on the stage who raise their hand. And, you know, there's a whole audience there. It almost feels like I'm at a conference and I can just kind of walk into these different rooms mid conversation or mid presentation and I can choose to leave quietly if I want. It's it's just so interesting. And then, of course, I can create my own room if I want. So cool. That's that's interesting. And I think it's definitely worth experimenting with as a podcaster to see what you can do there, or at least connect and, you know, would love to follow you there or, or, or anybody who's listening to this just at Pat Flynn, of course. But any other things that we can look forward to in 2021? Any trends, any sort of just insights from your end being in the industry, being working at Buzzsprout that we can maybe get some forward thinking and sort of information about? Sure. I mean, one of the big trends of 2020 that is continuing is the development of the podcast namespace. So everyone listening may not know this, but podcasting is built on a open protocol, RSS feed, and that's what distributes podcasts. And for years, that hasn't moved forward very quickly. And it needs to. There's a lot of things that we could do to make the experience of listening to podcasts more fun. So imagine if you're on your app and you're able to leave messages for the podcast host that they actually could listen to inside the app or being able to see the transcript in real time or be able to see where the podcasts are recorded. You could actually see what spaces. 
All those things are things that the podcast namespace is working on. So it's the podcast index, and they're trying to develop this more. Buzzsprout's been very much involved, and we're really excited to see the community come together. Rather than trying to pick out one app to kind of own all of podcasting, like we maybe kind of see in YouTube and video, Mm -hmm. instead having kind of a variety of options so that everyone can pick the right platform for them, but we can still get access to a lot of really cool features. Where can we go to make sure we're up to date with a lot of that kind of stuff, all all the new trends and whatnot? Where would you recommend? You could probably follow Podcast Index on Twitter. They post a lot there. We definitely talk about it a lot in the Buzzsprout newsletter. I know Pod News talks a lot about it. Pod News is great, yeah. I would recommend just, you know, as you're a podcaster, kind of keep up to date and see if the host you're working with is actually pushing into these new spaces. Because if we want it to podcasting to stay this open ecosystem, more similar to email and blogs and less like YouTube and social media, it's going to require a lot of competitors and different groups to work together to mm-hmm. develop it. And I love that this group, the Podcast Index, has kind of taken the forefront in saying, hey, we're going to start doing this. And we're going to kind of mediate between a lot of competitors and people who always don't play nice and see if we can move podcasting, take it to the next level. Wow. Thank you for that. And Alvin, thank you so much for your time today. Anybody who's ever thinking about starting a podcast, or maybe you have one already and you're not quite happy with your host, I'd highly recommend checking out Buzzsprout. You can go through our affiliate link if you'd like. We do get a little bit of a commission for that, but you also get some additional bonus time added to your plan if you go to smartpassiveincome.com slash Buzzsprout. And of course, just you can check out Buzzsprout, sign up to the newsletter, get access to their channel on YouTube, which I've seen is very great. And thank you, Albin and the entire team over there for everything that you guys do. Any any final remarks or words of encouragement for those stepping into the world or who are already in the world of podcasting today? You know, there's a outsized reward for everybody who's creating content. You're not just getting to connect with interesting people and you're not just able to get opportunities to new things. You're actually doing something really healthy for yourself, exploring what matters to you and getting your voice out to the world. And there really is something very healthy and very good about not just consuming content, but actually to create it yourself. So I really believe this. Even if you didn't end up with us, that would be perfectly okay with me. As long as you're creating, there is a lot that's very good for you to become someone who's producing content. Thank you, Adam. We appreciate you. All the links and such are in the show notes and best regards to the team and and thank them all for all the great things that you guys have done and continue to do for us. and, And we'll chat soon. Sounds great. Thank you, Pat. All right, I hope you enjoyed that interview with Albin. And Albin, thanks for coming on, my friend. Always appreciate having Buzzsprout's ear to uh, lend itself to us because we don't have access to the things you do. So appreciate the heads up and wow. Definitely a great opportunity to still start podcasting, especially as it's actually not as many as we think that we're actually competing against. And so if you'd like to start a podcast, obviously we have a lot of resources for that. You can check out Power Up Podcasting. You can become a member of SPI Pro if you'd like. Or if you already know what you want to do and you want to get involved with a host that actually will help you, that has some really cool factors and things that can help you with your podcast, including the Magic Mixer, which normalizes your shows to make it sound proper, just like our show sounds right now. If you want to make sure that you have good support, if you want to make sure you can almost with one click, get into all the places you need to get into, Spotify and Google Podcasts and Apple, of course, and all the other places. It's all in there. It's super easy. The user interface, that's why I love it, because 
you don't have to fight anything. It's just easy. So check them out. Go through our affiliate link. You get some extra time added to your plan. Smartpassiveincome.com slash buzzsprout. Again, smartpassiveincome.com slash buzzsprout. Thanks again for listening in today. I appreciate you subscribing to this podcast. And if you haven't done that already, make sure you do that. And again, smartpassiveincome.com slash buzzsprout. Or again, you can check out poweruppodcasting.com to check out our course that has helped thousands of people start their podcast. And that's it. Thank you so much. Take care. I appreciate you. And I look forward to serving you in the next episode. Peace out and Team Flynn for the win. Cheers. Thanks for listening to the Smart Passive Income Podcast at www.smartpassiveincome.com. So we're trying something new with the SPA podcast that we've been working on for a while now, and I'm so excited to tell you about it. We partnered with our friends at Supercast and just launched a new podcast experience called the SPA Podcast Premium Pass, and now you can sign up for it today. The SPA Podcast Premium Pass is a paid subscription that gives you all the content you know and trust and also gives you perks that we've never offered before. You'll get access to all SPI podcast episodes a day before they're published anywhere else, and you're also gonna get them completely ad-free. And soon we're gonna start publishing new weekly content that will only be available to subscribers, all for only $5 a month. It only takes a few minutes to set up the SPI Podcast Premium Pass and start listening with your favorite podcast player. Membership is super flexible with no commitment required, so you're in full control of your subscription at all times, and it's a subscription that you can feel good about. By subscribing to the Premium Pass, you'll be supporting the SPI team, which allows us to continue to produce valuable content, including new podcasts for you. We're so excited to be offering the subscription and we hope that you'll join us. Sign up for the SPA Podcast Premium Pass today at smartpassiveincome.com slash premium. Again, that's smartpassiveincome.com slash premium. Hope to see you on the Premium Pass. If you are an aspiring business owner, there are certain questions keeping you up at night. Like, will this work? Are there enough customers? How do I know there isn't a better idea out there for me? Everything rides on your idea working. So instead of just going for it and hoping everything works out, you need to first validate your idea before you get too far down the road. And that's why I created my course, Smart From Scratch. It's hands-on and comprehensive. It's a course that enables you to develop a business idea, validate it, and determine if that idea is viable to pursue all the way to getting your first customer. The course is designed to help you succeed with three distinct stages to take you from idea to business. It walks you through hand in hand the specific steps and action items to take and validate your idea and get your first customer. And once you get it working, you know, you can rinse and repeat and keep going from there. So don't fall into the trap of overthinking your idea. Instead, validate your idea first by putting it to the test. Action is always the best teacher and Smart From Scratch has the action plans that you need to succeed. And right now, for a limited time, you can get Smart From Scratch for just $199. This offer expires on February 22nd at 9 p.m. Pacific. So don't wait, this offer is going away. If you're hearing this, it's still up, but after that, it's gone. So sign up today at smartpassiveincome.com slash SFS. Again, that's smartpassiveincome.com slash SFS to get smart from scratch for only $199 today. You're listening to TED Talks Daily. I'm Elise Hugh. What will it mean to be human in the future? Mind and machine are melding more and more as technology 
evolves. In her 2020 archive talk from Ted at Wells Fargo, writer Rebecca Nill, who calls herself a cyborg, will explain how the blurring lines between man and machine have already meant huge breakthroughs for the deaf. TED Talks Daily is supported by Expensify, the most widely used expense management platform in the world with more than 10 million users. Time is precious, and Expensify makes it easy to manage your expenses, bills, invoices, and business travel all in one place, so you can focus your time elsewhere. You can even get reimbursed as soon as the next day. Whether you are a business of two or 2,000, Expensify is made for you because you weren't born to do expenses. Head over to Expensify.com TED to get started on your free trial. Support for TED Talks Daily comes from Odoo. Odoo's suite of business apps has everything you need to run a company. Think of your smartphone with all your apps right at your fingertips. Odoo is just like that for business. But instead of an app to order takeout or tell you the weather, you have sales, inventory, accounting, and more all on Odoo. You name the department, we've got it covered, and they are all connected. So go to odoo.com slash TED to start a free trial. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash TED. My name is Rebecca, and I'm a cyborg. Specifically, I have 32 computer chips inside my head, which rebuild my sense of hearing. This is called a cochlear implant. You remember the the Borg from Star Trek? Those aliens who conquered and absorbed everything in sight? Well, that's me. The good news is I come for your technology and not for your human life forms. Actually, I've never seen an episode of Star Trek. (laughs) But there's a reason for that. Television wasn't closed captioned when I was a kid. I grew up profoundly deaf. I went to regular schools, and I had to lip read. I didn't meet another deaf person until I was 20. Electronics were mostly audio back then. My alarm clock was my sister Barbara, who would set her alarm and then throw something at me to wake up. My hearing aids were industrial strength, sledgehammer volume, but they helped me more than they helped most people. With them, I could hear music and the sound of my own voice. I've always liked the idea that technology can help make the world more human. I used to watch the stereo flash color when the music shifted, and I knew it was just a matter of time before my watch could show me sound too. Did you know that hearing occurs in the brain? In your ear is a small organ called the cochlea. And the cochlea is lined with thousands of receptors called hair cells. When sound enters your ear, those hair cells, they send electric signals to your brain. And your brain then interprets that as sound. Hair cell damage is really common. Noise exposure, ordinary aging, illness... My hair cells were damaged before I was even born. My mother was exposed to German measles when she was pregnant with me. About 5% of the world has significant hearing loss. By 2050, that's expected to double to over 900 million people, or one in 10. For seniors, it's already one out of three. With a cochlear implant, computer chips do the job for the damaged hair cells. 
Imagine a box of 16 crayons. And those 16 crayons, in combination, have to make all of the colors in the universe. Same with the cochlear implant. I have 16 electrodes in each of my cochleas. Those 16 electrodes, in combination, send signals to my brain representing all of the sounds in the universe. I have electronics inside and outside of my head to make that happen, including small processor, magnets inside my skull, and a rechargeable power source. Radio waves transmit sound through the magnets. The number one question that I get about the cochlear implant when people hear about the magnets is whether my head sticks to the refrigerator. (laughs) No, it does not. Thank you, thank you, I know this because I tried. <laughs> Hearing people assume that the deaf live in a, in a perpetual state of wanting to hear because they can't imagine any other way. But I've never once wished to be hearing. I just wanted to be part of a community like me. I wanted everyone else to be deaf. I think that sense of belonging is what ultimately connects our stories, and mine felt incomplete. When cochlear implants first got going back in the 80s, the operation was Frankenstein monster scary. By 2001, the procedure had evolved considerably, but it still wiped out any natural hearing that you had. The success rate then for speech comprehension was low, maybe 50%. So if it didn't work, you couldn't go back. At that time, implants were also controversial in the deaf culture. Basically, it was considered the equivalent of changing the color of your skin. I held off for a while, but my hearing was going downhill fast, and hearing aids were no longer helping. So in 2003, I made the tough decision to have the cochlear implant. I just needed to stop that soul-sucking cycle of loss, regardless of whether the operation worked. And I really didn't think that it would. I saw it as one last box to check off before I made the transition to being completely deaf, which a part of me wanted. Complete silence is very addictive. Maybe you've spent time in a sensory deprivation tank, and you know what I mean. Silence has mind-expanding capabilities. In silence, I see sound. When I watch a music video without sound, I can hear music. In the absence of sound, my brain fills in the gaps based on the movement I see. My mind is no longer competing with the distraction of sound. It's freed up to think more creatively. There are advantages to having bionic body parts as well. Um, It's undeniably convenient to be able to hear, and I can turn it off anytime I want. (laughs) I'm hearing when I need to be, and the rest of the time I'm not. Bionic hearing doesn't age, although external parts sometimes need replacement. It would be so cool to just automatically regenerate a damaged part like a real cyborg, 
but I get mine FedEx from Advanced Bionics. <laughs> oh, I get updates downloaded into my head. It's not quite airdrop, but close. With the cochlear implant, I can stream music from my iPod into my head without earbuds. Recently, I went to a friend's long, tedious concert. And unknown to anyone else, I listened to the Beatles for three hours instead. <laughs> Technology has come so far, so fast. The biggest obstacle I face as a deaf person is no longer a physical barrier. It's the, the way that people respond to my deafness, the outdated way people respond to my deafness. Pity, patronization, even anger. Because that just cancels out the human connection that technology achieves. I once had a travel roommate who had a complete temper tantrum because I didn't hear her knocking on the door when her key didn't work. If I hadn't been there, no problem. She could get another key. But when she saw that I was there, her anger boiled over. She, it was no longer about a key. It was about deafness not being a good enough reason for her inconvenience. Or the commercial about the deaf man whose neighborhood surprised him with sign language messages from people on the street. Everyone who sent me the video told me they cried. So I asked them, well, what if he wasn't deaf? What if his first language was Spanish and everyone learned Spanish instead? Would you have cried? And they all said no. They weren't crying because of the communication barrier. They were crying because the man was deaf. But I see it differently. What if the Borg showed up in that video and the Borg said, deafness is irrelevant, because that's what they say, right? Everything's irrelevant. And then the Borg assimilated the deaf guy, not out of pity, not out of anger, but because he had a biological distinctiveness that the Borg wanted, including unique language capabilities. I would much rather see that commercial. Why does thinking about ability make people so uncomfortable? You might know a play, later a movie, called Children of a Lesser God by Mark Medoff. That play, that title, actually comes from a poem by Alfred Tennyson. And I interpret the, both the play and title to say that humans who are perceived as defective were made by a lesser God and live an inferior existence, while those made by the real God are a superior class because God doesn't make mistakes. In World War II, an estimated 275,000 people with disabilities were murdered in special death camps because they didn't fit Hitler's vision of a superior race. Hitler said that he was inspired by the United States, which had enacted involuntary sterilization laws for the unfit in the early 1900s. That practice continued in more than 30 states until the 70s, with the last law finally repealed in 2003. So the world is not that far removed from Tennyson's poem.
that tendency to make assumptions about people based on ability comes out in sentences like, you're so special, I couldn't live like that, or thank God that's not me. Changing how people think is like getting them to break a habit. Before the implant, I had stopped using the voice telephone and switched to email. But people kept leaving me voicemail. They were upset that I wasn't reachable by phone and not returning messages. I continued to tell them my situation. It took them months to adapt. Fast forward 10 years, and you know who else hated voicemail? Millennials. <laughs> and you know what they did? They normalized texting for communication instead. Now, when it comes to ignoring voicemail, it no longer matters whether you're deaf or just self-absorbed. <laughs> Millennials changed how people think about messaging. They reset the default. Can I just tell you how much I love texting? Oh, and group texts. My, I have six siblings. They're all hearing, but, but I don't think any less of them. <laughs> and we all text. Do you know how thrilling it is to have a visual means of communication that everyone else actually uses? So I am on a mission now. As a consumer of technology, I want visual options whenever there's audio. It doesn't matter whether I'm deaf or don't want to wake the baby. Both are equally valid. Smart designers include multiple ways to access technology, but segregating that access under accessibility, that's just hiding it from mainstream users. In order to change how people think, we need to be more than accessible. We need to be connected. Apple did this recently. On my iPhone, it automatically displays a visual transcript of my voicemail right next to the audio button. I couldn't turn it off, even if I wanted to. You know what else? Netflix, Hulu, Amazon Prime no longer say closed caption for the hearing impaired. They say subtitles, on or off, with a list of languages underneath, including English. Technology has come so far. Our mindset just needs to catch up. Resistance is futile. <laughs> you have been assimilated. <laughs> Thank you. TED Talks Daily is hosted by me, Elise Hugh, and produced by TED. Theme music is from Allison Layton Brown, and our mixer is Christopher Fazy Bogan. We record the talks at TED events we host or from TEDx events, which are organized independently by volunteers all over the world. And we'd love to hear from you. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or email us at podcasts at TED.com.